Hello. Good day, everyone. And welcome back to another Merged Worlds Dungeons and Dragons stream. Uh, today's episode um, will very much be the end of the current storyline that we've been telling. Um, and very likely we will get started into the next, I you could say, chapter of these uh, the characters' lives. So I'm pretty excited. Um, there's a little bit too much to do in the end of last episode and not quite enough to do for its own episode. So we'll kind of finish one out and start another one. But uh, I'm excited to get to tell it to you. Um, there are multiple... Uh, no, no, no cliffhangers in this storyline. Now, where we end up in the next one, hmm, we may never know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, uh, there are certain storylines, certain chapters of this that um, I'm more proud of than others. Don't get me wrong, I'm happy with all of it, for sure. But there's some that I feel are uh, a little bit uh, cooler, maybe. And uh, the uh, next section after where we are now really starts one of probably... I would say is probably the best D&D &D section. Because a lot of this is, you know, fantasy and D telling stories and D&D &D and such. But the next one could easily be made into a adventure that other people could play. <clears throat> you know, by just putting it, uh, putting it together as a campaign, I could make it a box set and release it. And people could play that storyline very easily. <clears throat> More or less. But that's okay. If not a lot of folks come in today, it's the... Uh, Last Sunday before Christmas, so a lot of people may be having family Christmases and holidays and such. Uh, some people may have to work on Christmas, so they may be doing this one, you know, today. They may be doing a lot of their family stuff today. So I expected a slightly smaller crowd today anyway, so that's okay. Um, is the camera coming through okay, or is it showing as blurry? It's a little blurry on my side. I apologize. <laughs> How many times have I heard that question, Brad? Um... I'm not sure, but we've got a, another person in here. We'll give it a minute, and then we'll fire up. Um, okay, good. Maybe it's on my playback screen. You ever do something stupid in a way that caused you, as a reaction to that, to do something even more stupid? I'll give you a quick, quick aside. As I was getting ready for the stream today, I have myself some delicious orange juice that I am quaffing over here. But I did, I did have quite enough orange juice to get me through the stream. So I said, I'm going to go get a bottle of water and bring it over here and set it down next to me. So that way when I run out of orange juice, I can grab some water, right? You have to leave in the middle of the stream to go get one. So I come over here and I sit down and I open the bottle of water and I look at it. And I'm like, why did I open this? I'm not going to drink it right now. That was a stupid thing to do. I'm going to drink this later. Stupid moment. But then I set it down. And the cap was sitting next to it. And a couple seconds later, I look at it and I'm like, oh, crap. I grab, put the cap on because in my head, I'm like, oh, I don't want it to go flat. It's water. It's not carbonated. But in that moment, I was like, ah, stupidity conjures stupidity. But I digress. So um, we'll do our brief recap in the last uh, story section. Darsh and Mercy found themselves sold into slavery in the auditor gladiatorial auditor uh, auditorium uh, of Oramon, the kingdom that they had meant to infiltrate. 
Uh, they had battled quite a few times, um, each time gaining more and more in popularity and such, and earning themselves a couple of nicknames. Uh, Dandy, or not Dandy, sorry, Mercy being uh, Lady Temptress, partially because she's the first woman to ever be in the arena, and secondly because of the relatively scantily clad outfit they gave her to fight in. Uh, Darsh, given a bit of a pirate outfit, uh, earned the nickname Captain Blackhorn, because, you know, that's the name he was given. As they gained in popularity, more and more people were coming to show up. A special event eventually was called, um, where, well, let's just say, they, as the fights were going on, they seemed to be being put in situations where they were meant to lose, but still success, managed to succeed each time. And finally, the Emperor himself, calling a special event, said that uh, there would be special battles the next week, and as the current champions, Darsh and Mercy would face two special uh, combatants. Um, Mercy's, they have not necessarily said who it's going to be yet. It's going to be a surprise. But Darsh would be fighting Crone Orksplitter, Emperor of Kronear. Uh, ally and friend of Darsh. In fact, the one responsible for making Darsh a noble in Minotaur society had been captured by Ormon in the battles and wars of some way. They don't know the whole story. They just know that he, they were captured by Ormon and had been led to believe that Darsh was the leader of the Blackhorn, which is the underground group that has been fighting against the Emperor uh, and assassins and negative people, bad guys. And the moniker Captain of the Blackhorn uh, led into that. It's like it had been planned by the Emperor, if you will. Uh, the Emperor of Ormon, not Kronir. So, the day before the battle, or was it two days? Before the battle, they were taken out of the arena to the home of Lord Valerian, the gentleman who bought them, and the... Uh, I should say, leader of Violet House. It's Ormon. The main noble houses are divided in specific colors. And uh, once inside, they were taken into a certain room in the middle of the house, looked like a library, where there was a woman there, a little older than Mercy immediately told them to lie down because she was going to cast a spell on them, which confused them. But with the lady was Quan, their ally, who had been hiding in the city and who they'd been afraid, you know, afraid for for a long time. With Quan's reassurance, they laid down and the spell was cast. And it turns out there had been a spell on them that A, blocked some of their memories, and B, could be used by the head of the Pandorian church, Lothar, to eventually occasionally see or hear through their eyes or ears. That spell had been dispelled. And in this chamber, it was protected in such a way that magic uh, couldn't be noticed by the emperor. This was the father of uh, Lord Valerian, was a wizard himself, and someone completely against the emperor as the young emperor was coming to power. And his sister which is the young lady that's, or the lady that's there with him, um, was being trained by the father, even though it's against the rules in that society for women to have any type of power or knowledge of that type. 
very often not even being allowed to read. Um, but Lord Valerian himself, the young one, didn't have much knack for that. He was more of the business side of things, and he was clearly going to be taking over the family, but in their, in their family it was well understood that his sister would help, but more from the shadows. Um, so there's that. Turns out there's an underground in Oromon trying to fight the Emperor and the sway of the Pandorian Church and those type of things. And that they wanted to make a deal with Darshan Mercy, that they'd been chosen for a specific reason. They've been basically feeling them out for a while. And they're going to help them escape by basically causing a revolt during the games before the battles with the Kron and uh, the mystery person who's supposed to fight. On the condition that they take someone with them. They didn't say who. But they would take someone with them and get them out of Oramon. And they would do everything they can to help them get Kron. And they also said they would try and find Tobias, the whole reason they were here. If she could find them, she would do what she could to try to get the uh, underground rebellion, whatever, to get him out as well. Darsha Mercy agreed, as these people have been helping hide Quan for quite a while. And um, Quan kind of gave them the thumbs up. And that's where we kind of left off. They were about to sit down and make their plans for the next day. So, as I mentioned a moment ago, the big plan is that before the battle starts, because Darsh fighting Crone and Mercy fighting the mystery person, were supposed to happen simultaneously. Understood that probably the Emperor wants to see them both die, you know, kind of around the same time. Make it one big swoop of snuffing them out. Because, let's be honest, if one of them was to die in a match first, it may make the next one fight stronger. You know, vengeance, hatred. Emperor's not an idiot. Well, that's no problem, Kick. No worries at all. Um, but glad to have you. <laughs> so, basically, uh, members of the, uh, Re <laughs> the Rebel Alliance, yeah, I should call it that, but the, you know, the underground were going to basically try to incite a riot both in and outside of the arena. And they didn't quite give a lot of details how they'd planned on doing that. Um, but we made know that this has been something in the works for a long time. Their plans were pushed up a little bit by this special fight the Emperor's put in. This was, they, uh, they're kind of rushed into their plans, but they believe that they can do it. Quan will be a go-between who will be there in the arena. And he'll be sitting in front of Lord Venerian, basically down in, right behind the gladiator's box for their colors. You know, they're down there, they're sitting in there. If it was like hockey, he'd be looking up behind the bench and he'd be the fr fr front row. And he'll be there ready to jump out and, and help them get out when the time comes. So they discuss some of the plans, signs to look for, um, show them maps of the outside of the arena and the best ways to get out of the city. Uh, they have made arrangements so there will be people at the city gates uh, during said revolt, if, they, if it's successful, to help get them, smuggle them through the gates so there's no problems there. And then once they're out, it's basically up to them. If they head south, they will eventually get to the ocean, although it will take probably four or five days of hard riding. And, uh, hello, Nathan. Hello, my friend. Uh, it takes several days of hard riding to get there. But once there, they could either steal or buy a ship or whatever they needed to do. 
to uh, try to make their way back to Paxawal or Thorman. The, they're, they're made aware that Thorman, there's a blockade there between Thorman and Oramon. So not a lot of things are going through there. And unfortunately, there's not a lot of information from the front. So they don't know who's winning or who's in charge of Thorman right now. If you'll remember, the king was assassinated. And you'd heard rumors, or they'd heard rumors of... Um, both the queen and the princess kind of splitting into two factions of a civil war as to who was going to take it over. Because the queen was a second wife. The princess was daughter to the king before she was born. So, And they're not that far different in age, as you know was wont to happen in these type of situations. Darsh and Mercy understand. They say, we're going to give you all the help we can, but once you're out of here, you're on your own. But you'll be escorting someone and you just have to get them to Paxwell. Once you get to Paxwell, we've made arrangements there. But we need to get them to Paxwell, and we don't have any other way to do it. You guys are the best shot we've got. But time is of the essence, and we have to get that done. I sound kind of bored? Oh, no, not at all. I'm just doing the recap kind of thing. No, not at all, no. Um, just kind of filling in the blanks of that stuff there. So, <laughs> sorry if I sound bored. That's not the goal. I'm, uh, again, this is the technical side of the things, right? Filling them in on information. Plus, I need more orange juice. Well, that's not my orange juice. Um, so, Darsh and Mercy are taking these plans. Again, they get maps. They have an idea of what they're doing. There is a plan in place. And at that point, you know, it's kind of okay. Remember, you can't say anything about her because she's basically the Emperor's wife, which I may not have mentioned in the recap. Um, not that she's happy about it. One of his wives, but his primary wife. Because, you know, it's how society works sometimes. Family movie night. Christmas Carol. All right, Turtle. Have yourself a good one, brother. All right. So, at this point, once all the plans are made, they do have some food eaten. Because uh, they were supposed to be there under a nice dinner. And it was nice to get some real food. They are then taken back to the arena. <clears throat> um, and back to their areas. Warwick, who runs that team in the trainer doesn't know about the underground and such. They're told about that, but he is loyal to Valerian over anything else. He's been a long-time member of the family and of the business. Uh, but he doesn't know about the underground because, again, not that they're afraid he's just going to go rat on them, but more of a problem where if something goes wrong and they get implicated, they don't want him you know, tortured and stuff as well. Uh, is there full on Jackbox stream anytime soon? Uh, not currently planned, no. Probably not till... We might do one Christmas Eve or Christmas Day because I'll be streaming both days. Um, haven't really figured that quite out yet, so not sure. And thank you, Jacob Horseman, for the sub. I appreciate that. So, once they get back, they're like, well, we got to go to sleep. You know what I mean? we got to get to sleep. So, they, they crash out. And then the next day is, of course, ninth day and the day of the big events. And now we can get into the part where I can actually read you some stuff. Uh, sorry, throat's a little dry today. Probably because this is like the equivalent of my third stream of the day. <laughs> All right. Next morning, ninth day. And again, as a recap for those of you who may be new, a lot of times I'm reading this just as I read it to the characters who were playing it. So a lot of times they'll be like, you see a blah, 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 blah. And, uh, it's they see it, but that's how it was written because it goes to them. <clears throat> You awaken once again and immediately can hear the sounds of your team preparing for the morning. Rising, you begin your own preparations as well. 
You ready yourself in silence, your thoughts filled with the day's events before you. Finally, Warwick arrives with your gear. You quickly dress and then eat some of the food Warwick brought with him, as Lord Valerian felt it best you not eat any of the food from the common room today. Because obviously there's something planned to try to get Darsh and Mercy killed. Let's not make sure they're eating any poisoned food either. Finally, Warwick gives you the go-ahead... Gives you the word that is time, and together with your team, you make your way to the staging areas. This is the section, the tunnel that goes down to the arena, <clears throat> right underneath the seats, and that you would then walk out onto the field. Once again, Turk carries the Violet House flag. So Turk's up front. He's one of the other gladiators from this house. You wait patiently for your house to be called. The crowd above you sounds and feels like thunder as their clapping and feet stomp in anticipation. Finally, the call comes down for Violet House, and you make your way out into the bright sunlight. You are almost deafened by the roar of the crowd at the sight of you. Looking around, you see there isn't an empty seat in the building. In fact, if anything, it's overpacked. It almost feels like the entire city is here. Even the walkways have people crowded in them, and there are far too many people crammed inside the arena, and you can't help but be amazed by the sheer number of them. You scan the crowd for familiar faces, hoping to see Quan, but to no avail. The Emperor sits on his throne, a confident smile on his face, and Tiara, the young lady I was talking about in the uh, the, the, the recap, uh, sits next to him. You are careful not to look at her directly. Because again, you don't let anybody know the jig is up, right? As you travel around the arena, you notice much more violet than ever. Uh, a lot of the people in the city will wear tabards or have flags of the colors of their favorite house. Um, and because of Darcy Mercy, violet has gained a lot of fans over the past couple months. Finally, you reach your box and look up to see Valerian. His face is calm and he nods at you. You take your seats and prepare for the day's events. Looking behind them, they look to see where Quan is. But Quan is not there. Try not to be too obvious about it. Mercy looks up and kind of looks to where Quan was supposed to be. And very subtly, Valerian just shakes his head and kind of shrugs his shoulders. Like he doesn't know where Quan is either. Which causes some concern to Mercy and Darsh. Quan, as you remember, is the is a warrior, but he's close to being a rugged. Uh, a rogue. Stumble all over that. Uh, he's very, very quiet, sneaky, very much say, ninja-like in his combat. Um, so usually he's good at taking care of himself, getting in and out of place, but, um, you know, there's still concern if he's not where he's supposed to be, especially on an important day like this. <clears throat> so over the next several hours, many battles are fought. Different gladiators versus each other in different types of events. Uh, certain creatures, you know, like lions and stuff brought in, maybe a bear. And some gladiators are forced to fight them. Um, fortunately, the uh, members of Violet House all make it through relatively unscathed. There are some injuries and such, but nothing overwhelmingly bad. It doesn't seem like the rest of Violet House is currently a target by the Emperor. It seems like all of that venom has been stored for uh, Darsh and Mercy. Um... Now, I have to apologize because I actually missed something that I have to go back and recap here real quick. And I'm so sorry for that. I flipped the page and forgot. But the night before, when they first came back, there was an event. And I'm sorry. I have to go back in time just a little bit. So let's just say that right now they have a flashback to the previous night's event. Upon returning to 
their, I guess you could say, cells or their team's area um, after the meeting with Valerian. Uh, they expected to be taken right back, but instead are taken to the common area first by the guards and then left alone in there. The common area is also semi um, walled. So there's an area that basically the guards could hand food through and things like that, but they're behind bars where the gladiators couldn't really attack them if they needed to be, if they needed to, kind of thing. And once they're in there looking around, Darshan, you're kind of figuring out, okay, well, I'm not sure why we're here, when they hear a noise from behind those bars. And they're shocked to look over and see the Emperor of Ormond standing there. He's paying them a visit. I must say, I greatly underestimated your skills and abilities. I should have known better, what, with as long as you survived in the pens. But still, it has been pleasant watching you fight. Sadly, you have been a pain in my side for a while now, and that pain needs to be cured. You and your friends, which is a concern because he's referencing other people, have been thwarting my goals for several years now in the land you've called Serenity. That was to be the first expansion of Ormon so we could move south into Paxawal much more easily. And now I find myself in a situation trying to attack a land that was all but mine. Still, Things are working out for the best. Battles tomorrow will help cement certain promises that I have made. And you will no longer be a concern. Know that once you are dead, I will continue on to serenity and I will claim it as my own as well. And everyone that you care about and value, I will see is properly punished and killed. And Darshan Mercy... You are saying some blah, 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 you know, hot retorts. The characters were waiting for a chance to say something to the emperor. But the emperor's unfazed. He's like, he's like, say whatever you like. He goes, in this, all the hand is mine. Card reference. You, you have no cards to play. And as he leaves, he bids them a farewell and reminds them that uh, enjoy their night's sleep because it will be their last. Just a little one-on-one -on -one with the Emperor. The first real conversation they've had with him <laughs> that they remember. So now we fast forward back up to the next day. I apologize for that snippet. Let me pull it up here. Okay. As I mentioned, battles are fought over the next several hours. The crowd roaring and enjoying themselves. Lots of betting and gambling going on. Um, so, a lot of people making and losing money. But the other members of Violet House, while there are some injuries, nothing serious, and everyone manages to make it out of their matches alive. Finally, Warwick, who, if you'll remember, is the trainer of the gladiators for Violet House, lets them know that the battle that's going on right now is the last standard battle of the day, and that Darsh and Mercy should prepare themselves. The last gladiators make their way off the field. Five or so minutes go by without any new matches called, and the crowd begins to murmur in anticipation. Once again, you scan the crowd for Quan, but again, you see no sight of him. 
the crowd begins to cheer as the announcer once more makes his way to the podium. After a moment, the crowd dies down and the announcer's voice can be heard throughout the arena. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure to bring you today's main event. The Emperor has decreed these battles to the death. There's a large round of applause, but you feel that it seems like a little less enthusiastic than you've previously heard. In the first ring comes the legend, that legendary succubus herself, warrior queen of the East, Lady Temptress. The crowd explodes into a massive roar, cheers and whistles, as Mercy rises and makes her way to the ring. <clears throat> Excuse me. After a few minutes again, the, the, the announcer waits for the crowd to die down a little bit. And in the second ring, of course, we have the Scourge of the Torren Seas, the Pirate of the Abyss himself, Darsh, Captain of the Blackhorn. And again, the arena explodes in cheers and applause. Darsh too rises and makes his way to the ring. Now we have quite a treat for you all today, ladies and gentlemen. Facing the lady is a surprise fighter. But he is no stranger to this lady. No, he knows her vile ways all too well. He specifically requested this challenge to regain his lost honor. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Sir Nicholas Dagoden, commander of the 12th Regiment. The doors closest to Mercy open, and the commander walks into the arena. The crowd cheers as he walks to the ring. He is wearing the same armor he wore on the field back in Serenity, and he is carrying his same vicious two-handed sword. Stepping into the ring, he smiles threateningly. I told you we'd meet again. You should have just surrendered. What? says Mercy. And risk the chance of seeing you defeated twice? Perish the thought. Dagoden frowns unhappily, starts swinging his sword, preparing for fight. And that was actually the line she said to us. I was very proud of her. It was very good. <laughs> Again, the announcer continues. Finally, ladies and gentlemen, we have our final event. Facing the captain will be royalty itself. His very own king, whom he betrayed. There is a world of bad blood between these two, and something tells me a lot of it will be spilled today. Ladies and gentlemen, Kron Orc Splitter, Emperor of Kronear. The doors closest to Darsh open and Kron steps out. There's a fire in his eyes filled with anger, but his demeanor is calm and experienced. He takes a moment to look over the weapons rack that had been provided for him. Finally, he decides on two double-bladed battle axes and turning makes his way into the ring. Now this ring for the two minotaurs, a decent size larger than the one is for Mercy and Dagadin. Um, but if you looked at their size per ring, they'd be about the same, if you follow me. Darsh and Minotaur are much larger, but the ring for overall size is still sparing. But they are a bit of a distance apart, and Darsh tries to call out to the Emperor, but the roar of the crowd is so loud, and the Emperor seems to be ignoring him, he doesn't really have a chance to say anything to the Emperor, who literally just looks at him with, like, I'm going to kill you kind of look. 
Um, so he tries, but he, he's not able to get anything over. Looking around the arena, you look for a sign from your, your allies. The revolt was supposed to begin now, before the battle started, to avoid anybody getting hurt uh, in the ring. <laughs> the crowd is cheering and clapping, but nothing is happening. You look up at the Emperor and Tiara, both smiling down at you. Let the battles begin, yells the announcer. With not much other things to do, Mercy and Darsh are forced into battle with their uh, opposites. So Mercy has the weapons and such and the flimsy armor that they're given in the arena. Darsh the same. While the weapons are of good quality, they're not exceptional. They're definitely not magical. Uh, Dagadin's sword and his armor highly outmatches anything Mercy has. And while she's using a sword and shield in this situation, um, letting go of her normal Morningstar that she would she would prefer to use, um, both her and Darsh very quickly realize they're outmatched. Um, she could hold her own against Dagadin normally, but with the lack of equipment and that type of thing, uh, she's on the negative. Darsh, on the other hand, doesn't matter if you gave him a better sword or not. Not even in a little bit. Because Crone has been the emperor of Kroniar. Kron, I'm sorry. has been the emperor of Kroniar for close to 22 years. One of the longest they've ever had. And while he's been challenged multiple times over that period, in no situation has he even come close to losing his position, which is normally decided in the arena. Um, he is a full head taller than Darsh. In fact, one of the biggest minotaurs Darsh has ever seen. And his shoulders are just horrendously girthed. Let's take a look at what Darsh looks like again, if we will. So here's an idea of what Darsh looks like on a regular day. Pretty cool. He doesn't have a black horn. I want to point that out. The whole black horn thing was chosen to eventually lead to this exact situation to make the Emperor hate him. But Kron... Uh, is much, much larger. Broader shoulders. He's wielding two of those axes currently that even a Minotaur would normally use two-handed. He's incredibly strong. Um, and he's a good size larger than Darsh is. So, wanted to give you those picks. Bring that down. And bring down Darsh. All right. So... In Dungeons & Dragons, of course, there are rounds of combat. Everybody rolls their initiative. People roll their attacks, so on and so forth. And Darsh and Mercy are purely on the defensive from the first round. Uh, both Kron and Nicholas are charging in incredibly violently. Kron's angry. He believes that he was betrayed by Darsh and that he was kidnapped, which is, of course, just dishonorable and brought here specifically so that his kingdom would fall, and that this whole time Darsh has been a plant to bring him down. Whereas Nicholas Dagoden, his entire brigade was beaten by Mercy and her allies, although it was mostly the mages that did the hard work at the end. Still, that made him look really bad in the eyes of the Emperor. And looking bad in the eyes of the Emperor, you don't usually hang out very long. You either get sent someone far away, or you disappear. So, Asking to reclaim his honor um, in combat against her is a way to try to regain face there. Especially if he does it this way in the Emperor's big plan. Does it in a flashy way, which he was probably said to do. Um, 
it can help him regain that lost honor with the Emperor. And again, he's using much, much better armor and a very savage two-handed sword. And a couple rounds go by, and both Darsh and Mercy um, are taking some hits. Um, Darsh is in a bit worse of a spot because he's genuinely not trying to hit Kron. Um, he doesn't want to hurt him. He's more parrying, trying to disarm, things of that nature. Mercy can still try to kill Nicholas, and she is. She's not worried about that, but again, it's hard to get around. While he has no shield, his, his armor is very, very good, and her sword very often is not doing much damage or getting through to injuries. So this carries on for several minutes, which is a long time in, a, in, a, in an arena fight. And the crowd is so loud. Talking is, you know, you know, even if Darsh tries to whisper to Kron, no one's going to hear anything. It's a roar going out through here. And, you know, so he's, Kron, again, all business. He's not snarling. He's not, nothing. he's just all business. He's here to take care of a problem. Suddenly, about that time, for those of you who've been here a while, you know, about that time means something's about to happen. A loud scream comes from a short distance away up in the audience. Which is odd, because there's a couple of them all at the same time. Everyone, the crowd kind of quiets for a moment. Oh, and the AC's a thing? Yeah, AC's definitely a thing. <laughs> um, for just a moment, you know, even the, the combatants, both sides, Cronum, everybody can't help but look and see, because it's not that far away. Hear it over in the, in the area. And the audience even goes kind of quiet. Well, there's like a, what's that over there? Several people appear to be in combat. And a few guards of Ormon, the type that are dispersed throughout the crowds, can be seen their bodies rolling down the stairs, because again, it's a big arena. And there's a commotion at the bottom of the podium where the announcer is. The Emperor rises and starts waving, you can see him like waving, like, well, get down there, find out what that is kind of thing. You see several more guards trying to make that way, but finally you see someone you don't recognize, some miscellaneous man, climb up on the podium and take control of the cone. So there's like a cone thing there, like, you you know, but it's magical and it pushes out your voice. They don't know this man, they don't know anything about him, but in this moment, Darshan Mercy have to hope this is the sign that they were waiting for. As the crowd goes silent in confusion, a voice rises from the podium. Good people of Oramon, you are all enslaved. The emperor for too long has held you down and held you back. For too long have you feared to speak your mind. Those people who've spoken against him or the church Friends and loved ones disappearing in the night. We've all lost someone for doing nothing but speaking the truth. As this guy talks, there's a little bit of murmur in the crowd. And instead, we are given this. This debacle. This charade to try to sake our blood in the victories and deaths of others. To take our minds off our own troubles. And yet, only to be played. Right now, as you sit in the audience, your homes are being searched, your businesses broken into, and those be left behind, hurt or killed. The crowd starts to murmur about this. The emperor seeks 
his enemies in every shadow and every whisper he feels there are threats against him. And right now your homes are being invaded. Those things you cherish taken, your families, mayhaps even your children, taken away from you. Now the crowd starts to really grumble. The emperor's waving. You see a bunch of group of guards come running in the arena. And there's a fight going on at the bottom of the podium. Clearly there's some armed people there fighting against these guards to main control of this. Karan and even Nicholas are looking at Darsh and Mercy like, we're not sure what, what's going on. Should we keep fighting? The man begins to speak, saying insightful things like he was before, telling the people that right now the guards of, of the emperor and the priests are sweeping into their homes, looking for anyone that they feel is not loyal. And the fact that they're not even here at this big event automatically shows that they're evil in the emperor's eye. Because the emperor sees himself only as good. And that when they return home, what will they return to find? A home that's destroyed? A child that's gone missing? A loved one? dead on the ground. This has gone on for too long and only through rising now would we have any chance to try to stop this. Even goes in a little bit further about right now that you've been lied to about the battle. Oromon is losing. The other countries are fighting back and the emperor and his minions are being kicked back out of their lands. And when they come back and they feel that they've been betrayed and that they've lost, who will they take that out on? Surely not themselves. But you. More taxes to take care of paying for their losses. Taking your sons and your husbands to replace their lost warriors, whether they wish to go or not. And again, your children corrupted and enslaved. Now, the audience is pretty upset about this, because at this point, now they're like, everybody's sitting there is wondering, well, what's going on at my house right now? And for the fact, these people on the podium are not lying. These things are legitimately happening. Because again, they're still looking for Quan. And whoever else might be out there helping. I'm sure the Emperor knows there's some form of underground, but not who's involved in it. Maybe. So there's this, and people are starting to get pushy, and there's the guards around the thing trying to keep people in their seats. And in one area, a woman stands and tries to make her way up the stairs towards the exit. A guard steps in front of her to push her back down, and she waving, pointing to her house, and tries to go around him, and he hits her. Probably a little harder than he planned, but she falls backwards down the stairs, and you see her rolling down. And that was pretty much everything the crowd needed. Um, just immediately, the crowd rises and starts swarming at the different guards. This guy's not letting us leave. He's hurting us, wives and children and such. To keep us stuck in here. What is going on back at my house? I can't have this. You know, People are businessmen. People are just family men. They start rising. And all hell breaks loose. Darsh and Mercy at this moment. Mercy especially. She's first. Immediately out of the corner of her eye. She sees Nicholas coming in. And once again she's back in combat. Sorry, I'm very thirsty. Once again she's back in combat. Uh, Nicholas tried to use the version against her, but luckily not that well. He actually rolled very poorly. I remember that specifically. By the way, I'm Nicholas. I rolled poorly. Kron and Darsh are circling each other, but again, the crowd is even louder now. There's no speaking. Darsh tries to yell out, but Kron hears nothing and is 
For all he knows, he's getting threats and the two men are circling each other. Um, hang on, let me get back to where I am here. Here we go. Uh, the Emperor is yelling out to the guards, but you're unable to watch because, again, Dandy or Mercy was under attack. The crowd, of course, is in chaos. Many are armed now with the weapons of the guards who have fallen uh, and uh, are, again, trying to fight their way out or fight their way down to the gladiator arena, just trying to find a way out to get to where their families are. Battles have erupted all over the place with thousands of people caught in the middle. In the arena itself, several houses' gladiators have joined in, fighting the guards of their own houses, seeing this as an opportunity to finally be free as well. Many of these people have been fighting as gladiators for 10, 20 years. Not many of them last that long, but some of the experienced ones, and the rest have been here for you know some period of time. Nobody wants to do this forever. You can see people trying to force their way down to the arena floor. And the battle continues. Uh, Darsh tries to get closer to Kron to speak to him. That's what the character told me they wanted to do. And rolled poorly and moved a little bit too quickly. Kron, seeing this as an attack, immediately moves to defend himself. And the two of them are back in combat as well. And this carries on for a couple of rounds. Um, they're not able to really see much of a whole lot what's going on because they're stuck in combat. Um, people are, are pouring all over the place now. There's hundreds of people on the arena floor. Some are fighting guards. Uh, some are where the guards were trying to take over the podium. Out of your corner eye, they can't see that there's anybody up there anymore. Whoever was up there stopped talking. But there's definitely a big fight going at the bottom of that. People everywhere. And the Emperor's up top just pointing and yelling... And beside him, you can see Lothar, remember Lothar was the head priest, trying to cast some form of spell as well. They're familiar with spell casting. They know what that is. Here we go. Um, suddenly, Mercy hears her name yelled from a short distance away. She turns and sees Quan with several other men, people, running in her direction. Or fighting, I'm sorry, fighting their way towards her. Nicholas uses that moment to claim an attack. And he did. And roared successfully. And is able to disarm Mercy and knock her to the ground. Uh, Mercy did not roll well then. But she's on the ground and he's standing over her. You know, this two big two-handed sword. Kind of right at her chest. Right in her throat kind of thing. Stand over like that. And he's a good size larger than her. Remember, Mercy is relatively short. But a pretty badass person, regardless of her height. Panting, Nicholas holds his blade to your throat. This is to Mercy specifically. And now, my lady, I regain my honor. Nicholas quickly raises his weapon and brings the blade crashing down onto your exposed chest. That's what I read to Mercy. At the same time, I read this to Darsh. Darsh looks up and again sees the Emperor commanding a group of guards with appear to be holding crossbows pointed at him and Crone. Seeing this, I was asked by Darsh, who looks like they're being targeted the most? And I said Crone was. Darsh 
says that he, he, he has no other option. He tries to dive in front with his shield to try to block as many of them for Kron as he can. That was the action that he chose. He dives and hears one clang off of his shield, but that's it. He expected a lot more from the sounds of it. Looking up quickly, look up, he sees that the guards with the crossbows are all falling over, arrows protruding from their bodies. Looking around, he looks over to Quan as well and sees that Quan and a group of other people are fighting towards Mercy and that many of the other men appear to have bows and are firing towards the guards and such very well hitting many, many of the ranged weapon guards and causing the clerics that would be casting spells uh, to hide in cover. Because these are people who are shooting some very, very good aimed arrows. Um, Darsh looks up and sees Kron standing over him, looking down with his two axes, a confused look on his face. Tossing one of the axes aside, he puts his hand out for Darsh to take it. Which he does, and Kron pulls him up. Even after all this fighting, he's shocked by Kron's strength. Kron basically lifts him up off the ground. Kron is very strong. And I want to point that out. Darsh is strong even for a Minotaur. Um, through magic items and things that have happened over the adventures, they got some items that sometimes will boost your skills, and he's really strong even for a Minotaur. But Kron, I, I, I've always wanted to make it clear to the characters that Kron is a badass. He's an emperor for a reason. And he could take Darsh in a fight, unarmed or armed with very little trouble. Um, and, and, you know, just because these are the characters and the heroes and they do heroic things doesn't always mean they're the best at what they do. There's always someone out there better than you, and you always have to hope you never find them. Kron is that guy. Kron lifts him up and makes a statement like, you were telling the truth, you did not betray or Kronayar. Darsh shakes his head. He goes, I never would. I'm a slave here myself. Kron nods his head. He goes, I should have known better than to believe their lies. I apologize. I have dishonored you. Darsh says, no time for that right now. We need to get the hell out of here. And Kron kind of smiles, reaches over, and picks up that other battle axe again. Then we switch back to Mercy. I like to do this telling the story where I'm I'm telling it to the character on Mercy. This is happening. She's like, awesome. What happens next? And then I just turn and I start talking to Darsh. Frustrates the hell out of him. So I'm giving him a cliffhanger right there in the moment. But it kind of makes sense because very often these things are happening at the same time. I can't tell both at the same time. I can only say one sentence at once. But I like to bounce back and forth because I feel it builds a little bit of the uh, stress in those situations. And the last thing I said to Mercy, drives the sword into her chest. Closing her eyes to accept the blow, Mercy feels no pain, other than the ringing in her ears from the large clang noise above her head. Opening her eyes, she sees Dagon and sword blocked by two curved swords. And then quickly, one of those fists moves popping Dagon in the face, causing him to sprawl backwards, laying on the ground. And much like Crone, this person puts their hand out to Mercy to help her up. Not knowing who quickly takes it and is pulled up and finds herself standing face to face with Ulrich. She is clearly confused. Why was he here? 
and rushing up. Uh, never hear anything about D&D, so this looks like a good place to learn more. Oh, yeah, swing on by. I, uh, I, uh, I'm telling a D&D story, but I'm also giving a bit of the mechanics. And here, uh, right after the beginning of the year, I'll be doing a short uh, podcast stream uh, telling a little bit about D&D and the mechanics behind it and some of the technical stuff of the story that I tell. So uh, happy to help uh, bring you into the world of D&D. It's tons of fun. I swear you'll love it. Looking at Ulrich in confusion, he holds out his hand and opens it, saying, How about we make this a fair fight? A big grin comes across her face, and she snatches her ring out of Ulrich's hand and slides it on her finger, and instantaneously feels the strength and weight of her morning star in her hand. You remember her magic ring can summon her morning star to her hand from any distance. And it's not a normal morning star. Um, Mercy turns. Nicholas, who's now standing back up, blood coming out of his nose, probably broken. Ulrich is not a weak guy. Starts to walk forward, and Ulrich just stands there and puts his arm together, arms and waits. And Mercy smiles and goes back towards Nicholas. Ulrich's going to give him a chance for that fair fight. That doesn't take long. Charging in, she throws her morning star at him, causing him to dodge quickly. But as quickly as it passes his head, it's back in her hand, where she's able to spin where he's on his feet and sends him flying. Knocks him flying. He stands up, but she's just coming at him. And in this situation, again, she's not screaming, she's not yelling. She just needs to get her work done. And she knows she's going to end this. And she's going for the kill. Um, Darsh and Mercy, you know, they're not evil people. They're not out to just kill people when they can. But there are times when a threat needs to be neutralized. And this is not just a threat against Mercy. It's a threat against her kingdom and all the people there. She's going to make sure this guy's a threat no longer. And sure enough, eventually, um, after several rounds of combat, she stuns him enough where he tries to turn and get away, but Mercy doesn't let up. And literally thwacks him on the top of the head and hears his skull crumble and crack under the weight of her morning star, which for the record is not nubs, it's points. Her morning star is sharp and those just literally go into the skull and he just crumples to the ground. She makes no move to take his sword, even though it clearly appears to be a magical sword, or if not that overwhelmingly well made, she would not dirty herself with such a filthy weapon. She starts walking back to Ulrich, who's standing there with Quan and Darsh and Kron. Ulrich is, I can't remember. Ulrich is the young man who she saved way back in the early days when the undead was happening, and then he followed and became her right hand. Ulrich is her, her second in command. The guy who used to be a knight but left the knighthood to instead follow Mercy. So Ulrich was her first minion and the one who's traveled with her the most. Mm-hmm. Quan was the second one on their trip to Serenity where they found him and then all the other ones Lars, Wade, and Seamus were all found in Serenity that's her minions for now okay they rush over and Quan is standing there uh, again with everybody but Quan is no longer enspelled he looks like regular Quan and Darsh Oh, you're very welcome, Teresa. Darsh is smiling, looking looking down at one of his friends, Nathalian. 
Nathalian, who is, of course, the elven lookout and uh, part of Darsh's loyal crew, who also happens to be one of the princes of Santriel, the elven kingdom. And the group of elves, 20 of them, that are standing there with them. Everybody's confused. Darsh, Mercy, they have, and Quan a little bit, but mostly Darsh and Mercy, no idea what's going on. All they know is Nathalian and Ulrich are here with about 20 elves who are just shooting the hell at anybody who comes near them. And Darsh is like, I really want to know what's going on. You're going to have to tell me later. And Mercy nods and everybody smiles and like, we need to get the hell out of here. Following their original plan, they make their way to an exit on the other side of the arena, uh, which is the one closest to the gate they're going to try to leave. Uh, Clover asks, Ice Drink, not today, I'm actually out. I will have a 12-pack of lemon-lime arriving tomorrow uh, via Amazon. Today, it's just some regular H2O, after the orange juice I just finished drinking. They have to fight their way through. Which isn't much of a problem with considering that there's what? There's 20 of them, Ulrich and Quan, who are capable, Mercy, who's capable, and then at the front of that, you've got Darsh and Kron. And most people just get out of their way. So they come charging in, and there's fights, but most people just get out of their way. They manage to fight their way through uh, the underbelly of the arena. They're fighting through the tunnels. These are tunnels. This is where the animals normally come out, but they know there's a direct exit out that way that animals are brought into their pens. It's an area they've never been in before, but it's the way Valerian gave them to get out. They only have to fight a few guards, and most of the animals are penned, or most of them are dead at this point because they've already fought today. There's only some small animal skirmishes. They had to fight, I think, a couple of lions that came free in the battle to get through there. But then they find their way out, and the city itself is in uproar. Houses are on fire, people are fighting in the streets. Um, and you can see that a lot of people are ganging up on clerics and knights of the, uh, the Pandaren Temple. That they were, in fact, looking through homes and searching for things. And the people who are leaving the arena seeing this are joining up with the people on the outside, because the people who are doing the revolt also were inciting outside. Then defending homes and things of that nature. So it's the whole city's just in an uproar. They have to do a couple small fights of against guards and people to get out, but eventually they get to the area where their horses are. And sure enough, not only are their horses there, there's horses and stuff for all of them. Because I'll explain why later. But there's enough horses there for all of them. And most importantly, there are a couple of men there that they don't know that are help holding up another person. And that's Tobias. Tobias appears mostly unconscious. He's thin like a freaking zombie. The dude's a wasted. Probably barely had food to drink in a long time. His skin is sunken. He's like frail. There's wounds. His eyes swollen. He's in horrible shape. Horrible shape. Malnutrition. All that kind of stuff. Probably pretty stinky. Probably hasn't had a shower in a while. People malnutrition are kind of stinky. Not to make fun of them. It just that happens. That's part of the process. Hello, Andrew. Thanks for coming by. But he's there and almost completely out of it. His hands are all wrapped up in bandages as well. And there's blood stains and yellow stains in the bandages. They're afraid to look in there. But also there is another person. And that's Perrin. You may remember that Perrin was the little old guy 
who was in charge of cleaning up the arena. An old, thin guy, probably in his late, late 60s, early 70s at the, at the, at the latest, maybe, maybe early 60s, but looks older. You know, some people are, and you work in a lot of really menial jobs. Sometimes it ages you. It could be a little of that, but he's definitely an older guy. And he's there on one of the horses. Everyone's a little surprised. Okay, this is who Kiara must have said. Remember, they were supposed to escort somebody out. They didn't know who it was. And, you know, he's sitting there on a horse. So they're like, okay, we've got to get Perrin out of here. We don't ask any questions. That's who we're getting out of here. And as they're getting on there ready to go, there's a small commotion as several guards dressed in the violet colors come fighting down the street. And he says, I've been watching your old Sky Factory videos and they're really helpful. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. I'm glad to hear they've been working for you. Thank you for coming by and saying that. Um, but several House Violet guards are fighting their way towards them. They, our heroes hesitate a moment to see what's going on. And Valerian himself, surrounded by these guards, has come running up. In his hands, holding a bundle. That he hands to Perrin. Darsh and Mercy, immediately shocked as they hear the cries of the baby coming from the cloth wrapped in his hands. Mercy looks at Valerian, who has tears running down his face, and says, My niece, you have to get her out of here. You've got to get them to Paxiwal. Mercy looks, nods, understanding the importance of what that's been giving, or what has been given to them. And smiling down, shakes his hand. And without another word, they all turn around and start rushing towards the gate. Again, two big minotaurs on horses with these other people and the archers shooting from the back of the horses. People are out of the way and they go charging through the gates. Which, at this point, this gate is being held by the uh, revolting people. No, revolting people is the wrong word. By the revolutionary people. They're not revolting. Most of them are actually pretty clean and good looking. Uh, revolutionary people who have taken control of that gate specifically for this exact reason. Teresa guessed it, huh? I was wondering. <sighs> Very pleased. Because they didn't. They did not guess that. Granted, in some of the stories and stuff, some of the role-playing, um, some of the hints they got led them to believe it was Perrin. So when Perrin was there, they were like, aha, we knew it. And then they get handed a baby. And they're like, oh, wait, there's this. <laughs> Hello, Fantanova. Welcome for coming. Thanks for coming by. Um, so, they go heading out of the city. Let me get to the page here. Uh, let's see. Looking back, you can see smoke rising over the high walls. The sounds of screams and battle is carried to you by the wind. You can't help but think about your allies still inside. Tiara, Brone, Kurgan. You can only hope they will be okay and that they are successful. Turning your horses south, you begin your trek to the ocean and to your freedom. Surrounded by your friends and allies, you feel good about your chances. So, the plan again was to go south, get to the water, try to find or steal a boat. Now, of course, it's going to be a several-day travel. For several days, they're, they're really pushing themselves as much as they can with a baby and an old guy of them, and a very injured Tobias, who's still out of it. Uh, at this point, they think he may even have after effects or effects of some type of spell because he just mumbles isn't making much sense. And he just lets them lead him around. He's not like freaking out or fighting at them. He just doesn't seem to know exactly where he is. 
And of course, it was at this time that Darsh and Mercy had to ask, how did they get there? So now we switch over and tell a little bit about their story. So this is Ulrich's tale. Ulrich waited two months. Two months after Darsh, Mercy, and Quan were gone. Remember, Ulrich was the only one other than some mages who know where they were really going. He waited two months, and he couldn't wait any longer. He knew something was wrong. He could feel it. Something had gone wrong. And he knew that his lord and his friends were in trouble. He gathered the rest of Mercy's knights, Seamus and uh, the brothers, and told them the truth about where Mercy had gone and that he was planning to go after her. He was concerned at one point that it may get physical, as all three of them swore up and down that they were coming too. There's no way they would let him go in there when it was such an important quest to bring her home and the friends, because they're all loyal to Mercy. But he had to stress how important it was that serenity, serenity be protected. And while it was left in his care, he knew he could trust them, but he knew something was wrong, and he couldn't wait any longer. Finally, he convinced them Seamus would be staying. Uh, it would be just told that Orc is making a short trip out uh, to gather some supplies from Paxiwal or something of that nature, which is not unheard of. He'd made trips of that nature before, um, and that he would be going. Packed his gear and left the next day. He went to the mages that were there, left by Lady Lamia to help protect while Mercy was gone. That was part of the deal. I'll leave mages here to help protect Serenity while you go and save Tobias. And he went to them and he's like, listen, I got to get to Paxiwal. Something's wrong. I got to talk to Lamia. What's the fastest way I can get there? He's like, I've got this key. I could go through the portal, but that's still at hard riding, at least a two to three week trip. And they're like, well, we can get you there. And they teleport him to Paxiwal. They send a message first, so Lamia's waiting for him, because he's going to show up inside a mage tower. And you don't be a regular guy with swords just appearing in a mage tower. You won't make it long enough to explain why you were there. That's just not heard of. He arrives. Excuse me, I'm sorry. Lossage. He arrives and is very quickly taken to Lamia. They talk, and Lamia agrees as well. They haven't, she hasn't heard anything from any of them, and she's concerned that maybe her spell didn't work. She doesn't know for sure. It was the first time they tried it. There's no way to know for sure, and she's tried to send other people in for information to try to find out what's going on, but either no one's returned or because they can't or they just haven't yet. Um, Ulrich, this only makes Ulrich more worried, and he's like, I'm going in. I've got to go in there, and I've got to try to find them. She's like, I could try to cast a spell on you again. He's like, I'm not, I'm not worried about that. I'll go in dressed like this if I have to. Because he looks like, he's, you know, he's not going to stand out. He puts on regular clothing, and he's going to look just like a regular guy. You know, I mean, uh, Mercy, clearly, Darsh, obviously, Quan. The three of them had to be physically changed because they're a little bit harder to miss. But Ulrich, shave his mustache off, throw some, you know, let his hair go a little dirty ragged, and he's going to look like a farmer traveling. He's like, I don't need the spell, and to be honest with you, if we don't know if that worked, that might have just made them more of a target. He goes, I'll, I'll find my own way in. Um, what Lamia does say is, well, if, you're, if you need to get through there, you're going to have to go around Thorman. 
Thorman is, there's a blockade there, and this is where we first find out what's going on with the war. Um, there is a blockade of Oromon and some Kronear vessels that are also fighting against Paxawal, um, Arduel, and other Kronear vessels. Kronear is in civil war right now. Those rumors were true. Uh, it is rumored that even the Emperor has gone missing or is dead. Um, and so there are two factions. One faction appears to be helping Ormon. The other faction is loyal to Paxawal, or loyal to the uh, agreements with Paxawal, I should say. She does also say that she knows just from, you know, keeping abreast of situations that the Morgenstern, which is Darsh's ship, has been assisting Paxawal in running supplies and soldiers from Paxawal to uh, the Thorman base, if you will, where uh, Paxawal and Arduel were the, the allies of the Southern Kingdom are working to try to defeat Ormond, who right now has hold of the majority of Thorman, including the castle. Um, Ulrich says, okay, excellent. I'll start there. So he ends up having to wait almost five days before the uh, Morgenstern finally comes back into port. And as soon as... You know, he's watching every day. He gets a little room. He's got plenty of coin. He's not poor. Um, Mercy pays really, really well. <laughs> like, ungodly well. Duke could buy his own small keep. But he uh, he has a he has a room. Again, it's a cheap one right by the water and spends all day watching for the ships. And finally, the Morgenstern comes in. Making his way there as quickly as possible, he finds uh, temporary Captain Dorham, which is Darsh's right-hand man. Who knows him, of course. They've spent a lot of time together uh, traveling before. Welcomes him on the ship and he says, I need to speak to you in private. And Dorm's like, okay. So he takes him into the room, but he brings in with him Nathalian, who is currently the acting second mate. If you remember, the normal second mate is Rokar, Darsh's minotaur cousin. But right now, while Darsh is gone, Rokar is overseeing and taking care of Darshtopia, which is Darsh's islands that are being built. Because with everything else going on, there's the fear that Kronear bad guys may try to roll up in there and cause problem on Darsh's island. So Rokar is there with the de- with a bunch of hired people to defend the islands. Hello, Xbox and Glarius. Hello. Thanks for coming by. Appreciate it as always. And I should say thank you all for coming and listening to my story. If you're having a good time, please be sure to click like, but most importantly, subscribe so you can hang out at all my stories. All right. Ulrich tells... Dorum and Nathalian, what's happened? Talks about the battle and that Mercy and Quan, because they know Quan too, and uh, Darsh's secret trip into Thorman and how nothing's been heard. This immediately, of course, worries Dorum and Nathalian. Not only do they consider Darsh a friend, he's their captain, and they're very loyal to him in the same way that Ulrich is loyal to Mercy. Darsh, again, takes very good care of his crew. Um, again, doesn't abuse them, doesn't overwork them, pays them very well. I mean, he's the type of guy, it's like, what, you've got a sister that's sick? Here's the money to go take care of her, stuff like that. You need time off? We'll pay you while you're gone. Darsh, Darsh has earned the loyalty of his crew time and time again. And Nathalian, especially with the help they had in Santriel, you remember when they went and helped defeat his evil brother and stuff, uh, also extremely loyal. So they're like, yeah, okay, we're going to have to help you. We'll, we can make it around the blockade. It'll take a while. We're going to have to go really south into the ocean and around it, but I think we could run it. The Morgenstern's a pretty quick ship, and it's kind of on the smaller side compared to a lot of the more battle-sized vessels. That's why it's been mostly doing um, material runs, because more is meant to be a merchant ship. But it's fast, and it's small, and they think they can get through. The concern is, how do they get there? 
it's at this point that Nathalian speaks up. And he's like, we're fighting magic at this point. And I'm not a mage, and none of you are a mage, and the mages here say that they can't do anything. I think that at this point we need some magical help. He goes, I think we should speak to my father. He goes, elves have powerful magic of their own. Uh, he goes, and while I am not a mage, it's not my touch. I know that we have great mages within our city as well. Maybe my father has something that can help. Ulrich, not super happy about the thought of going the opposite direction from Mercy, because that's where Santriel is, agrees that they may need some help, and any help the elves could give them, magical or not, could be very beneficial. And again, they're traveling with Nathaniel, who's a prince. And Darsh and his allies are well-known in the elven waters at this time. They have free reign, uh, ability to travel through there. And so they've been there before. And they make a break for that going around Arduel. Um, they tell the crew, we're going to San Trial to pick up su well-needed supplies. And people are like, okay, because everyone's loyal to Darsh. When Darsh isn't there, Dorm's there. And they're loyal to Dorm. Because Dorm knows what Darsh would want. If Darsh was here, he'd be leading the ship in the exact same things, either for combat or bringing supplies. Darsh is good people. So, they make their way to San Trial. That's not a short trip. It takes a couple weeks to get there, and then they got to travel almost five days on land just to get to the, the, uh, the home. But, of course, they get the whole carriage rides with the really cool giant elk that they rode on last time, which is the fastest way to travel on land in San Trial. And they make it to the home of the speaker, of the, 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 the head, the sovereign, I'm sorry. Um, while they're there, they, they're speaking with the, uh, the, uh, the sovereign and uh, the crown prince, which is actually Nathalian's younger, oh no, the middle brother. Nathalian's the youngest, yes. Uh, and, and he explains what's going on, Darsh is missing, and that they have, they believe they're going to go into Arduel. Santriel, the sovereign, goes, oh yes, we're very well of, of, Ardu of uh, Oramon. We know, we, we've, we've been watching them for a while. And even Nathalian's a little surprised. They're like, they're way over there. Like, they're far, far to the west, well past these other cities. And the sovereign's like, well, we, we, you keep an eye on everybody. We keep an eye on Serenity, we keep an eye on Arduel, and we have open talks at this point with Arduel and King Christopher, and we're making some, some, some way there. We've worked out some agreements. Uh, there's been the potential for trade. We are keeping our promise to Darsh and, and the, the sons that he is going to work towards bringing peace between those kingdoms, because it's not easy. They were at each other's throats there right at the end, but they've made great leeways towards that. He goes, but we also don't trust humans, and we don't trust special humans the ones that worship Pandora. The elves are not a big fan of Pandora. Not even a little bit. He goes, so we're well aware of Oramon, although we have not been able to get... Well, we have not uh, traveled their lands too much, implying they've traveled it some. We're aware of what, they, of, of what they're doing and the war and all that that's going on. And while we've not directly involved ourselves in this current war, because, you know, we're kind of letting the humans fight each other out. They're still elves. We're... We're keeping an eye on it. And talking and, uh, with Ulrich and, and, and everybody about what Lamia had said and how mages can't get in there, the Sovereign goes, we've long... Oh, even cookies and cream Pop-Tarts. Those are tasty. Um, he says he's been, that they've long assumed that Oramon had in their possession the, the, the gargoyle... Excuse me. <clears throat> the gargoyle stone, which is actually a statue 
Uh, but that can sense magic over long distance. And if someone powerful is using it, it is a clerical item, that they can sense magic of items or spell casting and things of that nature. Um, they've always assumed that's what they had, and uh, if that's true, then that's how they're able to catch people. You know, sneaking in like Tobias and such. Um, he says, we have something to counter that. And Nathaniel's like, really? He goes, oh yes. And he sends for a talon. A talon is a group of elves specifically trained for combat and infiltration. Uh, these are the guys that the M the Sovereign sends out when things need to get done. Uh, what those things are, nobody ever really talks about. And very often, even the elves don't know who's actually in a Talon. Um, some people just, a lot of times, just go away. Hey, I'm going to go move to this other city. But they're really going into a Talon. Uh, talon consists of 20 elves with a specific leader. They call in uh, a talon that's currently there. The leader elf walks up, and they have these small brooches, which are like a golden and silver leaf that have been magically ensorcelled by the elven mages to counteract that. It'll hide them from any type of magic that searches for them. Um, it actually nullifies any magic that uh, it basically touches. To an extent. So, if Ulrich has one on... It's not going to sense him, any magic items he's carrying, any spells he casts. Now, if he casts a spell once the magic leaves him, like a magic missile, as soon as it's away from him, the magic missile will be sensed. But as long as it's... And he can't cast spells. I'm just using that as an example. It's, he would be protected. But it will nullify other magics as well. Because, again, it's meant to nullify and to help hide the elves. So, while it doesn't make them look any different it does cause people to look past them. So if I'm an elf and I'm walking through the group, your eyes will scan across me. You're just not going to notice me. I'm not invisible. They'll know a person's there. They'll excuse me, walk around. But they just don't notice the features of this person. It allows them to blend into crowds. Uh, granted, if I do a giant spectacle, like I jump up on a table and start shooting arrows at people, you're going to notice. The brooch isn't going to help me in that situation. But as long as I don't do anything noticeable, your eyes will pass by me a couple exceptions. If you know me very well, there's a chance you might see me. If, if the Emperor walked into Serenity wearing one of these things, there's a chance that Mercy would be like, Hey, I know you. You're the Emperor. I, you're, I just know you too well for this to work. Uh, does your wife like Dungeons & Dragons? No, she's never played. Although, she's listened to parts of this story. Um, and I've just recently started bouncing off of her parts of the story that I haven't written yet. So she's heard some things that nobody else has heard, but she's not really into D&D. &D. And she likes fantasy a little bit. She likes Lord of the Rings and stuff like that. Um, but it's not really her type of thing. Not really a, a, a much of it. She likes board games. That's pretty much the extent of games for her. She tried World of Warcraft for a while, but unfortunately, uh, because of her seizures and such, uh, she could watch the screen flashing. It just became too much for her. Um, so yes, with these... The Emperor says, well, if Nathalian is walking into this territory, he's not going out with, with him with some protection. And the Crown Prince agrees. They send this talon of elves with them. Uh, so Nathalian, Ulrich, and this talon are going to go in. They give them several other brooches as well, in case it's successful and they're able to get their friends, like Darsh and Mercy. It's not going to help with Darsh. No brooch is going to hide Darsh. You're going to notice a minotaur. It's too obvious. A minotaur. But it might help hide Mercy 
or maybe even a couple of Darsh's crew if needed to go with them, whatever they decide to do. Ulrich is overwhelmingly appreciative of these things and promises that he'll get them back to him because the Sovereign does make it quite aware that these are loner magic items. These are not permanent magic items. <laughs> the elves don't want this kind of thing just getting out there. But the prince is going, they'll let him go in this situation. So I want to stop and real quick mention that a talon of elves, all right, the, 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 the talon, which basically elite soldiers of Santriel, training-wise are on par with the elites of Oramon. If you remember, the elites are always in twos, don't ever talk, very, always have plus one magic swords, um, very, very dangerous and skilled fighters. Santrial Talon member is of the same quality, and while he's good in hand to hand combat about, he's also incredibly good ranged. Some better than others, some maybe more melee based versus range based, they all have their specialties, but they all can shoot a bow like an elf, because they're elves, and that's pretty good most of the time. So, getting back to the ship, they all start booking it towards Thorman, and they go around the blockade as they want to, which adds almost a week and a half because they have to go deep into the southern oceans um, in an area that not a lot of ships travel, Cronear uh, being one of the few. Kron the, the Minotaurs, they go all over the place. They're not scared of anything. They'll go all over. Uh, but they manage to make it around into lands that are south of Oromon. Now, these lands aren't Oromon-specific. They're mostly not important enough to be Oromon. Um, there's a couple small fishing villages or people just trying to make a living after mer the merge worlds merge, just kind of hanging out there doing their thing. And they manage to find a dock big enough that they can travel through. They actually go a decent past uh, south of Ormond because they know the directions, they know the coordinates and such. Um, and they go past a little bit and make land. So it's determined that they're just going to be the Talon, Nathaniel, and Ulrich are going to go. Um, because Nathalian kind of has to. The Talon's not going to go without him. They're there really to protect him and help him. So he's going to go. And he feels like he wants to anyways. Dorm is going to stay with the ship. Because again, as temporary captain, that's his job. So they make their way uh, over several days uh, to get to Ormon. And they don't get any horses or anything at that point. They go on foot. Again, they're trying to be as least conspicuous as possible. They don't stay at any few inns they come across. And once they're in Oromon lands, they make a point of camping out and staying quiet. No fires at night. The elves are very experienced at being sneaky, um, even more so than Nathalian or Ulrich could ever be. Um, and they, they pick up a few extra little skills traveling there as well. Um, finally, they meet their way to the city. Uh, they, they managed to get in without any problems, just you know, cruising through the gate without drawing any attention to themselves. And then they start looking. They're hanging out for about two days, and they get rooms at an inn. Average price, not a super cheap one, not an expensive one, an average room. The, all, they all break up and go to different inns, not all of them, like groups of three or four. They decide it's best not to all be at one place, uh, but there's a member of each group that, of course, is a Talon member who will stay uh, connected so they can pass messages and such. The leader of the Talon is staying with Nathalian, Ulrich, and another guy. Another member of the Talon. Kind of break into fours. Or four to sixes. Mathematically, that would work. <laughs> Sorry. Had to do the math in my head there for a second. Um, so they spend a couple days uh, just trying to see if they can find any signs of their friends. 
um, learning what they can about the city. Uh, this is also a great uh, opportunity for the Talon to learn more about Ormon, and I'm sure they have those directives from the Sovereign. While you're there, learn everything you can. So learning how the city works, the houses, all of that. Um, a lot of information is being gathered while they're there. And then, um, without any luck, eventually, they went into a store just to look around. Ask a few questions, so on and so forth. And before they can, while they're just kind of meandering, and this is Ulrich and Nathalian at this point, Ulrich does the most talking to people because of all the group, if somebody does notice him, he again looks just like a regular human. The elves and stuff try not to if they can help it. Um, so Ulrich is, is, is a benefit to the talent in this situation as well. Ulrich, and they're listening, and they hear a conversation about the upcoming games. And they hear about Captain Blackhorn the Minotaur and Lady Temptress, his ally, and their gladiator fights. This, of course, immediately draws their attention. And Orc, you know, says, hey, starts to break up a conversation with these people that are talking. Pay no attention to me using a back scratcher. My back's itchy. Um, says, hey, sorry to uh, intrude in your conversation. I'm, we've just, I've just made it back into the city. I've been gone for quite a while selling produce from my farm or whatever it is. But I came in town to uh, see the games Found the lie. But I'll be honest, I haven't heard of a Captain Blackhorn and Lady Temptress. Uh, are they new? And they're like, oh, you don't. Let me tell you all about them. And of course, they're very excited to talk about their favorite gladiators. And it only takes a minute before Ulrich knows. Okay, well, yeah, this is who I'm looking for. Thanks to these people thing. And they now pass this to the town. Everybody is searching around the arena, trying to find out if they're in there and what's going on. But the arena has a lot more guards than normal, because the Emperor has been going in and out a little bit lately. Uh, and so it's a little bit more hard, a little bit more difficult to get in there. It is while searching for a way to find out what's going on, the morning of the actual big fights arrives. And they're hanging outside, and they're they decide they're going to make their way in to try to see what's going on. And <laughs> I remember I was telling the story. I startled them a little bit. Uh, can you add me on Discord? Yeah, you're welcome to send me a, a, re a friend request. I'd be happy to add you. Sure thing. Um, they're, uh, he and the Talon are, are uh, walking through an alley kind of thing, waiting for a chance, spring for the crowd to really be swarming in so they can kind of get lost in the crowd. Um, when a, you know, a couple of people are walking through the alley and suddenly Ulrich finds himself up against a wall and the Talon and Nathalian's weapons are drawn super quick at this person who's just grabbed Ulrich and put him against the wall and this person is looking at him confused and Ulrich's like i, I Sir, I, I think you have the wrong person. And the guy goes, Ulrich? And Ulrich stops for a minute and looks at the guy and goes, Quan? And the gentleman in front of them, that doesn't look like Quan, but is Quan, because of the spell, smiles. They both do. They begin to talk a little bit about what's happened. 
Quan fills them in on the whole, hey, today there's going to be this giant revolt thing going to go on. Um, I'm supposed to be in there, so on and so forth. How did you guys get in here? They tell their bit of the story. Talk about the brooches. They give a brooch to Quan. To help Quan blend in. Quan's like, I'm all about it. Soon as he puts it on, the spell is dispelled. And he goes back to looking like Quan again. That was unexpected. They didn't realize that was going to happen. So now, Quan can't just pop in and sit behind Darsh and Mercy because that's too obvious of a spot where someone might notice him even though he's got the brooch on. Because he's right underneath Lord Valerian, right behind the two people that everybody's come to see fight who the Emperor wants dead. There's going to be a lot of looking in that area. So Quan's not able to go in and take the seat he normally wants to. But that he... Um, he got that, you know that he, he has to figure out what he's going to do. So what they figure out is they're like, okay, they fill him in on the plans, but having you guys here might really help get them out of here. So it's decided, okay, we're going to help join in. Uh, and they all make their way inside, but at this point, up into the crowds, as close as they can get to where the exit is going to be, because they know from Quan, they know which way uh, Darsh and Mercy are supposed to be making their escape out of the Gladiator Arena. So they try to get as close to that as they can. Um, and while most people aren't making it in with weapons, uh, the elves with their bows and such, you know, they, they just don't get noticed if you don't pay attention, especially with the mobs of people swarming through in the hundreds. They all go in separately and mix up. So if one does get caught, it doesn't draw attention to the others. And they all make it in and get to where they're supposed to be and are all sitting relatively close to each other, but not all side by side. Again, don't want to draw any attention. Any attention could be bad. Uh, let's see my thing. Would you like to play MMC Mod Pack together in a server online today? I appreciate the offer very much. Unfortunately, I wouldn't be able to. Uh, mostly because I just don't have the time. 99% um, of my free time is making videos, editing videos, preparing worlds for the next stream, merge world stuff. I, I just don't have time to take on another server. I don't get a chance to play most other games even if I want to. Um... So I appreciate the offer, uh, but at this time, I, I rarely have time to even get on the members' uh, server just because of everything else that's going on. But I appreciate it. Plus, my regular job, you know. Uh, Bragg says, I was gone 15 minutes, now I'm watching it in 1.5 speed. Oh, I wonder if my voice sounds more funny. <laughs> so again, we have... Uh, then, of course, they're there. They're watching. The fight starts. Uh, Ulrich immediately recognizes Dagoden, who's fighting Mercy, because he was there. He saw that fight happen the first time. And he also knows Kron. He, they're a little shocked to find out Kron's there. None of them knew about that. And so they're like, okay, well, we've got to get a bunch of people out here. Only oh, chat isn't late, so I can't hear my response. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's uh, pretty cool. So of course the battle happens. Ulrich brought Mercy's ring for her Morning Star. Couldn't bring much else of her stuff, uh, especially considering that magic might be a concern. But he knew that was one of her more powerful items because her Morning Star is a pretty fat magical Morning Star. It's got some pluses to it and some basic abilities. Um, it has one or two special abilities, and one of them is on a roll of natural twenty. It has like a stun chance of something like. Not like a, it would blind you or anything, but it will literally make your senses confused for 1d4 rounds. Um, so there's that. When's the next Jackbox? At this point, I don't have one scheduled yet, so I'm not sure. Maybe later this week, 
on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. I haven't decided what I'm streaming on those two days, but I will be doing a Christmas Eve and Christmas Day stream this week as I am off of work. Not sure of the times yet either, uh, to be determined. Okay. So that kind of brought us to the point that everybody saw in the story. The, the fight started. Everybody was doing stuff. The elves and Ulrich and Quan come running in there to help out. Mercy gets a ring. Faces get squished. They make their escape. Um, and that's the story of Ulrich and his quest to find Mercy. Uh, who gets chewed out a little bit, by the way. Mercy does chew him out for ignoring an order. Because he was told to stay there and protect Serenity. Um, of course, she'd have been dead if he hadn't been there. And she recognized that. But she definitely wants to main sure, make sure she maintains. And he accepts the rebuke, rebuke with uh, the best ability to not smile, even though he really wants to. And if he did, he knows he's going to get slapped. <laughs> and, you know, but she's, you, know, you, just, you know your, your job. Do what you're told. Mercy, uh, the young lady who plays Mercy, always struggled when talking to Ulrich. Because she, she, he was loyal, he was, a, he was a minion, but he was also like a really good friend. So she wants to act like a leader, but at the same time doesn't want to seem like a boss. So she struggled with talking to the knights, especially Ulrich. Um, so again, yeah, they go breaking south. Um, on the fourth day, as they're gaining close to where the Morgenstern is, I guess you could say, parked. I guess, I'm not sure the... Docked would probably be the best word. Um... They're, they finally have a group from Ormond catching up to them. And the group that's coming does not include the Emperor or Lothar, but there are a couple powerful clerics there. And they can't, the heroes can't go any faster because they've got Hurt Tobias, Old Perrin, and the baby, who at this point they have learned from Perrin it is Tiara's daughter, which also makes it the Emperor's daughter. And they learn of what her fate was meant to be. The Emperor has a goal of once again returning Pandora, his goddess, to physical form. He has been seeking her essences, which are locked into several different boxes amongst the world. And as he frees those, Pandora gains more power, but she needs a physical form. And for that, his child was marked. Uh, even before consummation. There, there, it was done in a specific way so that the child is meant to be the new body of Pandora. Tiara, once finding that out, could not let that happen. And so Perrin, who's been loyal to the family for many, many years, uh, is charged with taking the child out. Tira can't go. No way the Emperor's not going to track her down. Valerian can't go. There's not a lot of people they have, except for Perrin. He's just a regular dude. Um, and while there's a lot of loyal people in the house, Perrin's probably not going to be noticed bumbling around the world with the baby. Um, and they've made arrangements for assistance in Paxwell, although Perrin doesn't give any of those details. He's not to share them with anybody. Once they get to Paxwell, he's to leave them and to basically disappear and never be found again. And the more people that know where he is, the more danger there is for the child. Uh, I think I had a name for her. Let me see. Um, give me just a second. 
Lana. Her name was Lana. L-A-N-A. Lana. D&D is a fun story to do. I love D&D. It's a blast. And have yourself a night, Xbox. Have yourself a good one, man. We will hopefully catch you very soon. I got uh, Tomorrow night at 6 p.m. Eastern will be Sky Factory. So hopefully we'll see you then. So this battle plays out. Um, and Nathalian... No, not Nathalian. It wasn't Nathalian. It was Ulrich, who, while again, not wanting to abandon Mercy, is charged with making sure that Perrin gets to the ship. Uh, because they made a deal. And so he's like, all right, I'm leaving you with the two Minotaurs and Nathalian and 20, 20, 20 elven archers. So as these, this force is coming at them, it's about 50 Oromanian soldiers that are coming. Cause several clerics mixed in there and, and a good chunk of at least 10 Oromanian elites. Uh, those 50 are knocked down to about 30 by the time they get to melee range because very good arrows coming from the Talon. Um, and again, the 10 Ormanian elites, which normally would be quite an impressive group in combat, is facing 20 elven elites of the same caliber. So they're outnumbered. Granted, they have some clerics in there, and that makes issue because, again, it's Perrin, Tobias, and Ulrich that have left. They don't have any mages, so that became a bit... There's no real magic there. That was the one thing that they had. There was, I think, two or three clerics that were relatively powerful, but not super high-ranked. Because as much as I'm sure the Emperor wanted to come himself or send Lothar, his most powerful, uh, he's in the middle of a revolt, and his temple is under siege back in the city. Oh, well, welcome back, Bragg. <laughs> so, this battle... Regular battle, I wanted to have one last, you got to fight to make it out kind of thing. Um, it went through, there were some injuries, nothing major. Uh, the elven elites was the first time they've ever hand-to-hand combat fought uh, Ormanian elites. The difference being is the elven talon knew about the Ormanian elites. They had no idea the talons existed. So they're marching in like, we're better than everybody. And then the talon just mops the floor. Mostly because they weren't expecting it. And once they finally start to realize... That these people are as, as, then they've got to get more serious about it. But literally, they're like, ah, we'll just charge in and kill. But the Talon just literally first wave wipes out a chunk of them. So they were successful. And then again, you've got Kron, who's fighting for his freedom. Who's just literally two battle axes still. He's mopping the floor with people. Uh, I want to say he beheaded at least one cleric himself. He was very unhappy. He wasn't messing around. He Horses and everything. He's just mopping through there. If a guy on a horse was coming by, he just behead a horse. Dude's strong enough to behead a horse. Dude could do it. Horse and the guy go rolling on the ground. Like, I'll kill you later when I dig you up from underneath the horse. And Kron was just... was. This was an opportunity for me to show how skilled some of the NPCs were for future reference. So there's was that. But they were successful, and finally, after there's no one left surviving, because Mercy Darshankron left no one left surviving, which is what the Talon was going to do anyways. The Talon's like, I, whether you say it or not, we don't work for you. We work for the Nathalian, and these guys are a threat to everybody. We're going to kill them, and they do. So there's no survivors on the uh, Ormanian side. They managed to make it to the ship uh, a couple of hours later, where Ulrich, Tobias, and Perrin have already boarded. Ulrich looking... A little nervous, hoping that everybody shows up. Tobias is in a bed uh, where he's fallen asleep. And uh, Perrin has been given one of the rooms. 
uh, or is down in one of the bunks, Darsh immediately gives a command to have him brought to his room, uh, because from this point on, they'll be taking his room, he'll be sleeping with the crew. Uh, his room is the most secure room in the ship, to be honest with you. Taking command of his vessel, Darsh immediately has the Morgenstern set sail, and they know they have to get to Paxable, because they got to get Perrin there, and Kron is in a hurry to get home because they're all, while this is going on, Darsh and them are being filled in by more of the political stuff that's happened in the seas. While Ulrich, Ulrich learns some of that, he doesn't know the factions, what like Dorham and Nathalian do and such. Um, and Nathalian, I'm sure, has caught Darsh up some, but Dorham and them are now have a chance to literally sit down and say, okay, here's what's happening. Here's what's going on. Kron, your, your, your entire kingdom is in civil war. And you're believed to be dead, and people are fighting to see who takes over. And Kron's like, by, by damn hell, no, they are not. I'm taking back over. And he's like, Darsh, you got to get me back there. And Darsh is like, <coughs> it would be my pleasure to escort you back to your seat, sir. But we got to go to Paxiwal first, because getting this child to safety... Was the agreement that agreement was made for our for our uh, for our freedom, and Kron is like, I, I have no problem with that. As much, as much as I'm in a hurry to get back, I owe a debt to these people as well, and I also don't want that prick Oramon to get his daughter back either. So I'm fine with that. Anything I can do to help this child get away from that asshole, I'm fine with it. And so they decide to run the barricade. Um. So they're coming from behind. Most of the because Thormon and Oramon. Thorman uh, and the Ormon side of Thorman has less ships. They have a better defensive position. They've got the keep behind them, basically, and, and a bit of a barricade. Uh, Paxiwal as ba- and, and their side of the Minotaurs are basically blocking it on an angle so that the Ormon can't keep moving towards Paxiwal. So the barricade is more of a defense from Paxiwal than it is a, a defense of Ormon, and I wanted to clarify that. Um, as they're getting close to it, uh, they immediately, you know, because they're just booting up at full speed, and the Oromon ships are like, what is that ship doing? And, and uh, Paxwell ships are like, what the hell is that ship doing? And then that ship starts firing on the uh, Oromon ships, who are not expecting a, an attack from behind. And so literally, if you'll remember, Darsh has a sea mage, fireballs start shooting out out of there, and all sorts of business. It just starts going, Darsh has his own magic items on the ship that several people have. He's got his... Uh, He's got Gasket, who's his uh, tinker gnome, who's not only just a navigator, but builds some funky things. They literally start shooting fire and fire arrows, because now the, the Talon are shooting flame arrows. All these ships start catching on fire, and while people want to return fire, they do that, they risk hitting their own ships, because it's going right between them. Paxual sees this, and they're confused, until the ship bursts through basically the line of ships, which is kind of stalemate. I mean, if you know what... Uh, the barricade is, it's literally just ships sitting there across from each other, occasionally trading blows, just not letting each other get by. Um, and this ship just squooshes right through the ship, setting a bunch on fire and damaging one enough that it starts to sink. There was a big explosion of a fireball. Paxiwal starts cheering, and then the flag goes up on the Morgenstern, showing Paxiwal's colors as well as Darsh's. Um, Morgenstern, as I mentioned, has been bringing supplies for a while. It's recognized, as well as they see the colors on the ship. And as the Thorman or the uh, Oromonian ships start to try to follow, Paxiwal starts moving and firing as well, and the Morgenstern is able to get by. I do want to say that during 
this part of the story, uh, Darsh was doing some actual commanding of his ship. He had I made him actually do some of the strategy. How do you want to do this? This is your ship. Tell me what you want. Okay, he's like, okay, can the elves shoot flaming arrows? Yes. Can this person cast a spell? Yes. They found out what their abilities were, and he said, we're going to run it to save time. Because there, there was a concern that the longer they take, and I pressed this, the longer they took, the harder it's going to be for them to get Kron back into Kron AR and back into uh, a leadership role. So they run the, the blockade successfully, and... Are, once they basically say what's happened, they, they talk to, you know, they get on the good side, they're talking to Paxwell, and they're like, hey, Kron Orksmitter, the, the Minotaur Emperor is here. We got to get him home. And the generals there are like, yeah. And they, of course, send a ship to escort it back to Paxwell, a more military ship, because now they know who's on it. They can't send a lot of ships, because they need them for the barricade. But they send a ship to escort them. They book it as quickly as they can to Paxwell. Uh, to get back there. Um, let me see. I'm going to firm up. Um, through the blockade. Okay, I had that there. And as they are uh, getting into Paxual, the ship has taken some damage from that as well, of course. Needs some repairs. It's going to take at least a couple days to repair and restock before they can go to Kronar. It was at this moment that I surprised my D&D characters, or the, the players, I should say, by immediately switching channels. Artemis and Dandy! And they're like, huh, what? And they start reaching for the, try to dig those care sheets out, because this has taken several weeks of play. They hadn't touched those sheets in a little while at this point. Basically, um, let's see, they're like, well, what are we doing to get home? And I'm like, just have your character sheets out. We'll talk about it in a minute. And we're like, okay. So Darsh and them make it to the to the docks. And they get there, of course. The their entourage people are there, show up the people that brought them there. Uh, they immediately say what's going on. Kron, a thing is sent to the uh, the temple to talk about this and that and healing. The message has been sent to the wizard's tower. Um, and to be honest, the wizard's tower made it there first. Uh, Lamia and several other mages just magicked their way there. There was no horses or nothing. They arrived, and immediately, of course, finding out what's happened, they go to Tobias. They see the shape that he's in, and they're like, we, he doesn't need to go to the temple. He'll be coming with us. We'll let you know if we need help. And they basically take him and whoosh him back, and then Lamia says, come to me as soon as you're able. And they're like, oh, okay. Um, Darsh puts Dorm in charge of getting everything fixed and up ready to go. Um, several of the leaders of um, Paxawal arrive, some of the generals and such like that, because remember, it's ruled by a council. Um, and while Kron and them have spoken a little bit, they've never he's never come here before. And they're like, hey, we need to talk. And Kron's like, yeah, we do. I may need your help taking back my kingdom. And they're like, and we also want you to be in charge of your kingdom, because we liked it when you were in charge. Let's talk about that. And Kron takes a day or so to work some things out uh, in person that he's never really had the opportunity to do before. So, Darsh and Mercy and Ulrich uh, leave once the ship is getting taken care of, make their way to the temple. They explain everything to Sister Mara, and or they leave a message to Sister Mara. Sister Mara's not available. They leave a message saying that they're back and so on and so forth, what's going on, and that they'll come back again here in a little bit once they've had a chance to talk to the mages. 
They then go to visit the mages, where they are taken uh, up to meet Lamia, and as they go bumbling into the room where Lamia is, um, instead of just Lamia, they walk into a room with Lamia, Artemis, and Dandy. And Michael. And Michael, yes. They're all just hanging out in a room with, with Lamia, and everybody's like shocked, like, oh my goodness, and they all rush together and hug and so on and so forth. So much like I did with Ulrich, I now have to recount what happened to Dandy and Artemis. And this wasn't something that they actually played. They were made aware of their trip back at this point as well. Um, and it was that way on purpose. I'll explain why later. Um, but um, when they, I basically let them play their characters. At that point, I switched over to Artemis and Dandy. And I explained, okay, this is where you are now, and this is how you got here. So basically, what they did is they were, um, once they left where Draven died, uh, they made their way back over a long period of time. It took a little while because they're going a little bit slower, but they finally made their way back to King Darkmoor, where they went in and they returned the magical item. They tell the truth of their whole story at that point, the whole thing, other than the fact that she's pregnant, um, Artemis is. And they tell the story about what they were doing, what happened, and who Daedalus was. Um, it doesn't take but a second for an incredibly smart dude like um, Darkmoor to realize that Daedalus was the same vampire creature that took over his castle that he had to basically fight out of there and who they were practicing against. So, or, or sorry, protecting against. So, by killing Daedalus, they've taken away the biggest threat in the area of Darkmoor. Doesn't mean he's happy with these people. They broke into his home. They overtook his uh, generosity uh, and uh, ended up hurting, you know, to knock out his friend, the, the, the priest, and steal an artifact that they were using to protect themselves because they felt that their need was more important than his and his kingdoms. While he understands that in the long run he helped them, Still pretty pissed. But they did help him a little bit. So he agrees to help them get home faster. He is going to teleport them. He has all sorts of magical items for that. Um, they ask the surviving tribals, uh, are you do you want to come with us back to where we are? And they're like, no, we're gonna we're gonna find our way back to our people. Um, there's still a large amount of our tribe that is alive. Um, they need to know what happened to Shastra, which from this point they call her Shastra and not the prophet because they don't see her as that. They need to know what happened to Shastra and Draven, who is our ally, and, and that Draven's quest is finally done and that that thing that slaughtered half of our people is dead as well. We need to get back to our people and make sure that they are safe. That is our role. And so there's, you know, some... Crying and hugs and kisses and such. And most of that's Michael. I'm just kidding. It wasn't Michael. Uh, but, you know, thanks and such for everything. And, you know, the swearing of friendship. If you ever need us kind of thing. If you ever need us kind of thing. Back and forth. Uh, and we hope to see you again, even though we live a really long way apart. Um, Darkmoor says he will help them with supplies and make sure they have need to get home. He can't teleport them because he doesn't know where they where they're going. He knows where Paxiwal is. He doesn't know Serenity. He goes, I can't teleport you to Serenity. I don't have that ability. He goes, but I have had talk with Paxiwal. Messages have gone between here and there. I know enough of where that is that I can open up a portal to there. You can get to, to Paxiwal. 
And they're like, well, we, we would appreciate it. And, you know, not super happy about it, but he does. Uh, Bragg says, if I ever meet up with other players from other campaigns and Merge Worlds, I would say, if we ever meet in the future, I'll say hi. <laughs> Foreshadowing in a whisper. <laughs> yes, I like to... Uh, I'd like to add a lot of foreshadowing as much as possible. As much as possible. So they were teleported back. Once they were there, they went to the temple, of course. They were just teleported just outside of Paxwell. He can't he didn't teleport them inside because that's not his job. And they make their way inside, of course. As soon as people see here's a cleric, it's easy for them to get an escort to the temple. Uh, and it's the three of them at this point, remember. It's Michael, Dandy, and Artemis. They go there. They talk to Sister Mara, because this is before Darsh and them show up. And explain what they went through in Draven. And she talks to Sister Mara about her new medical condition. It's probably a bad way to say that. Um, physical condition. We'll go with that. Um, well, being pregnant, basically. And wondering, you know, you know, talks to her openly about this. Because Sister Mara is, at this point... Artemis technically is about the same rank as Sister Mara. They've both got their own temples, basically, and they're head of their... She's, a, she's the head of her temple. She's actually closer to Bart's level, but both Bart and Mara are still more powerful than Artemis is, if you, if you know what I mean there. Because you can be more powerful and have a weaker rank. You know, there's some really good soldiers that are phenomenal fighters who may not be a general. You know, just because your rank doesn't mean your power level. So Artemis is the same level as Bart when it comes to rank within the clergy. Uh, but both Bart, Lamia, and also Lycos, all three of them, way more powerful, also older, but way more powerful than Artemis is. But rank-wise, that's important. They can talk as equals. Um, and so she explains it, and she's like, I'm concerned, of course, because his race was half-born vampire, half-demon, and my child will be a quarter of each of those and half elven. So, you know, will this will this even work? You know, so on and so forth. And um, by this point, they, they travel the distance to get back to the to where they are now. So several weeks have gone by. Um, and and Mer uh, Artemis is feeling some of the side effects. I guess you call them of pregnancy. Um, Mara says, "Well, we've never, of course, come across this. Uh, we'll do whatever we can." Um, we're going to check on, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll go through our archives. I will talk, because even though they're cleric, they may not birth a lot of babies, because we have clerics here that do a lot more of that. We'll talk with them while you're here. We'll figure out what's going on, and we'll make sure that, you know, we get the best healers and specialists for this situation. Uh, we'll probably send them back to Serenity with you. I'm sure you'd rather go back there to your own temple to deal with this. We'll see if we can get some help to go back with you so that there are some people there magically who are, who are more focused on this. Much like a sea mage could be focused on magic to help people on a ship. Different. I could be a cleric of healing who's trained more to help people heal in battle. Or I could be a cleric of healing that's more dealing with people who have sicknesses and illnesses like plagues. Or I could be one that deals more in childbirth. I have spells of healing and such that can help easing with that type of situation. Uh, so much like wizards in merged worlds, you can have a specialty as a cleric. It's much like what's called a kit. In Dun oh, hello, Midnight. In Dungeons and Dragons, you choose your class. Fighter, mage, cleric, rogue, whatever. Um, but at least in second edition, there's a thing called a kit, which is like a subclass that gave you maybe some abilities and some negatives, maybe some more restrictions. Um, and 
I took that kind of in Merge Worlds, especially when it came to Magic users, uh, and gave them some uh, bonuses and cons based on what they wanted to specialize on. Sea Mages was the first. Smages, we all called them. But uh, the Sea Mages uh, were the first one that I ever came up with, and I liked it enough that um, around the same time we came up with Michaels, which was a hunter. Uh, and a hunter is specifically for hunting undead, and there's a there's a whole underground group of those people that specifically do that. Um, so I have several kits that a lot of these characters eventually get, especially the NPCs. Most of the PCs are straight their own thing, but a lot of the NPCs have kits that um, certain NPCs are going to be more beneficial to the party in different situations. So I wanted them to say, okay, we're going on a quest to do this. I need someone who can do this, this, and this. And now they go to their 30 or 40 NPCs, and they pick the three that they need. It gave a, a, a fun way of mixing up the different adventures moving forward and for the story, because it's not always the same NPCs. Um, but it also gave them a little bit um, uh, a, a, a little bit more flair, so they weren't always using the same people. It gave them a chance to role-play different relationships with people that were important to their character. Hello, Midnight. You're good, buddy. Uh, let's see. Whoever plays Murder Campaign, call your character Draven. That would be funny. Oh, Draven wouldn't let that happen. <laughs> nope. Can't choose a name that's already taken. Unless it's like, you know, Frank or Jim. I mean, something like that I'd be fine with. <laughs> so, because I have actually done that a couple of times. Um, all right. So, they stayed in town for several days. Um, and they've learned about Ulrich from Lamia at this point that at this point, a month or two ago, Ulrich came through here, and they learn what happens with Mercy and Darsh, because Lemia tells them the truth of the whole story. And they're like, oh my god, we need to get back to Serenity so we can gather people and go save <laughs> Darsh and Mercy, right? Uh, and they're in Paxiwal for several days um, when the Morgenstern finally arrives. They happen, uh, Lamia sends for them as soon as she hears that the Morgenstern's coming, uh, because there, there was a sea mage on the ship uh, both Darsh's Sea Mage, but there's one on the uh, actual Paxawal escort ship that sent a message magically to Lamia to let them know Tobias was on the way. Um, because they, all the Sea Mages that from Paxawal have been on the lookout for these people, especially Tobias, and for any notice of them. Because he's a relatively low to middle ranked cleric at this point. Um, but everyone kind of knows he had a relationship with Lamia. Which, if you're new here, you don't remember. Lamia was a very old, older lady mage. And her and Tobias, casting a spell, got stuck in the mystical sands of time. And when they came out, he'd aged a little bit. And she had gone back to like an 18, 19-year-old physically. Um, and their ages in the sands of time, ages in time works funky. And while they were gone for a couple months of game time, they were gone for several years, stuck inside the sands till they could find a way out. Um... A little bit of that. So most of the mages know that Ulrich, or not sorry, um, Tobias and Lamia have a relationship of type, um, but it's not something that's openly spoken about. You don't mess with Lamia. No matter if she looks like she's 19, she's still a 65-year-old woman inside and one of the most powerful mages in Paxiwal. There's only one more that's more powerful. So everybody gets to meet up in Lamia's keep. She comes rushing in there. Everybody else, oddly enough, they went to the temple first. I asked them where they wanted to go. They said Temple First, but they weren't there. Hello. You're okay, buddy. Hold on a second. 
sorry, cat fight. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I always feel bad. I watched one of my older streams today, and I felt bad how many, uh, how often I had to stop to take care of cats. So if me having the cats bothers or really takes away from the stream, please let me know in the comments. If I have to, I can lock them upstairs because I don't want the cats to affect the stream. Um, so everybody kind of hears their story. They know what's going on. Everybody hears each other's tale. Um, they're told that Tobias is going to live, but it's going to be a long road to healing. Um, Artemis helps a little bit with that. Uh, that's one reason they called Artemis in, as they know she's a pretty powerful healer and friend of Tobias. Uh, and she does some of her magic and such. Uh, that helps him with the physical side, but the emotional and mental scars, as well as he is in fact inspelled, that's going to have to be taken care of by the mages. Uh, so as much as they hate to see it, they don't get to talk really to Tobias because he's with the healing, it basically puts him into a coma. Kind of thing. Um, yes. So at this point, everybody kind of has to figure out what they're going to do. And uh, they determine that Darsh is, of course, going to take Kron back to Kronar and help him take back the Empire, if you will. Um, they're all... Everybody reacted slightly different to Draven. Um... And that's one thing I was pretty pleased with because the, the girls that played these characters, remember, each of them have two characters, right? Darsh and Artemis are played by the same person and Dandy and Mercy are played by the same people. And they did a good job of having everybody react differently. Um, Darsh was like, hey, um, congratulations on the pregnancy. I'm sorry to hear that the father has passed away. Clearly he meant something to you. Um, I'm very sorry that that happened. Uh, kind of wish she had told us about him earlier, but, you know, I'm here for you, my friend. Dandy's just, you know, she's already been a part of this, so she doesn't have to react. But Mercy is very excited for Artemis, because Artemis is excited about the pregnancy. She doesn't view it as a negative thing. But she's a little bit more hurt by the whole deal, because she's Artemis's best friend, and Artemis never told her. Um, so there was some role-playing I allowed them to do to talk about that, that... Um, and kind of deal with that. I just kind of let them, hey, this happened. What's your conversation? Go. And I sat back and they're like, uh, and they had that conversation out, which is kind of, again, interesting to have them just converse back and forth as their characters, um, dealing with something of that nature. And they did a very good job with it. I thought they, they did a good job of separating how one character felt versus another, especially when Artemis and, uh, Darsh had to talk to each other because she plays both of them, which is fun. So, um, we're going to leave off. Here it was. Um, so at that point, it's determined that Artemis, Mercy, Dandy, and Michael are going to go back to Serenity. Uh, Mercy needs to get back there, make sure everybody's safe, because again, Ormon had threatened to come back there again. they got to be prepared for that. Artemis, clearly in her situation, does not need to be going to Kronear and jumping into combat and battles. At this point, Artemis needs to be nowhere near combat. She needs to be safely protected in her temple, after she seriously gets chewed out by Lucas. And I promise you, I role-played that conversation a little bit. That was fun for me. Because uh, he dressed her the hell down. <laughs> Remember, she just disappeared. Right? He didn't know what's going on. So, Darsh, of course, is going to go with Kron. He's going to go with himself and he's going to help it out. So Darsh has a little bit more of the story to do that we'll, we'll, we'll chat on here in a minute. Um, and then there's one other thing that happens 
to the Artemis Mercy Dandy Michael group. So I'm going to talk about Darsh's first, and then I'm going to finish up with the other group, and that'll be the end of their tale. Uh, and then we'll just very, very... Darsh, as soon as a couple days are done, he says goodbye to his friends who are going to go north, take the portal, and go back to Serenity. Uh, with, uh, at this point, several more Templars, several clerics specifically going to help Artemis with her pregnancy. Uh, Mercy, Ulrich, Dandy, Michael. Who's going to be traveling in that group. Um, Michael did bring with him a key. He had a key with him. So, and they, they, remember, they had two keys. There is also a key inside the chest of holding. So they technically have both the keys with them. Uh, which really kind of screwed Serenity now that I think about it. But yeah. <laughs> and then, but Darsh, he bids them goodbye. And he gets on the ship. And he goes to get um, Kron back home. Uh, getting him to Kron AR is actually not that bad. All the lies that were told about Darsh to Kron were just told to him. Uh, it wasn't really spread on the islands because it wasn't needed to. No one knew where the Emperor Kron, the Emperor, was because if they said, oh yeah, he's a prisoner in Ormon, even if that was hinted, Minotaurs were like, okay, we are fighting each other, but we hate, hu you know, humans messing with us is just not tolerable. They would have just marched into Oromon, all of the Minotaurs, and if you tried to stand against that, you'd have been in trouble. Because um, if you didn't stand with them, they know you're a traitor, and then they're not going to play that. Um, so it was just said that Kron was dead. So two factions were fighting over who would lead, and that's where the Civil War was, because some of them wanted to help Oromon, and the loyalists to Kron wanted to stay loyal to Paxwall and the Southern Kingdoms. So, while that's happening, um, Darsh's ship comes sailing in. Um, at first, it seemed okay, then it didn't, then it did. So let me explain. They land on there, and they have all the rights to be there. Darsh's ship is known. He knows the quartermasters at this point. Or quartermasters? I think it's quartermasters. The guys who are in charge of the dock. So he lands there, and, you know, he's like, hey, this is me. You know my papers. I'm here, and look who I've got. And they're like, oh, my God, Kron's alive. Send the message out. Kron is alive. Um, and we get you back to the... Uh, to your house, basically. The, 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 I don't know what you call it. It's not really called a castle. It's more of an estate. Like a big marble-looking... Because remember, they're very uh, Greek-oriented uh, in their architecture. So big marble pillars and something like that. So they, I guess you could say it's the castle. Uh, they go back to that. And on the way, of course, they get attacked. Because some of these people don't want Kron back. Um, but many of just the regular populace, uh, population see... you know, And this happens in the streets. Most of the Minotaur are loyal to Kron. Uh, it's mostly Zathanth, which is the dickbag island that they've had to deal with before, and some small groups throughout the other islands that uh, are just not a fan um, of, of that, because they don't like humans. So, a couple small skirmish, skirmishes, uh, but Darsh is able to get him back. Um, as they get there, they find that the home, if you will, the Empire, is under siege itself. Inside, Kron's family is being held by separatists, the group that don't want to be part of humans, the bad guys, we'll say. But they're the separatists, is how I refer to them. And the emperor's family and wife and children and all of those folks uh, who lived there and such are being held basically prisoner by the bad folks. 
um, who are saying that they they are claiming that uh, the new empire, and of course they have a champion. Uh, I don't remember his name offhand because it wasn't important at the time, uh, but he was a big minotaur who uh, was. They were trying to say, no, we have claimed to fight for empireship, which, again, you can claim that, but you have to work your way up ranks to even have the option to claim to duel for the emperor. Um, and technically, with if the emperor was dead, there should be basically a free-for-all kind of thing where everybody came and people would fight through the ranks to see who the new one is. But they're trying to take it without the battle, if you will. Um, and most of the loyalists aren't willing to go in because of the family. Uh, this is super easy to read, right? The chat? Yeah, I can read the chat, okay. Um, but with Kron showing up himself, that throws a big old monkey wrench into the group inside. Because Kron's like, no, I'm the emperor. And if any of you wish to challenge that, come on out the front door. Yeah, you go to the arena, we can solve this right now. And Kron literally does that. He goes... Anyone who feels that they're worthy to take the Empership from me, step on out. He goes, I, I'm basically welcoming any challengers. Setting aside your rank, whether you're a noble, whatever. Anyone who feels they're challenging, walk up here. Puts them in a spot, but their champion comes out. And he's a big guy. He's almost cron size. Not that bright, because he was never meant to be a leader. He's meant to he's the figurehead that the evil group was going to use, but he's a pretty good fighter. And sure enough, he and Kron fight. Uh, and it doesn't take but two rounds until he's like on the ground. Like Kron just destroys him. Obliterates the dude. Just axe in the chest and blood everywhere. Like, he just wipes that dude out like it's nothing. Definitively saying, that was your best. What else have you got? And then at that point, everyone else is like, okay, it's been proven, get out. And there's a bit more of a battle. And then the two sides actually started to fight. And Kron and Darsh and several of their loyal group, because Kron has some loyal people, and Darsh brought a few people from his ship. And this is one situation where he actually brought Dorham with him. Because Dorham's, Dorham's a damn good fighter. He's a damn good fighter. And Dorm normally doesn't get to leave the ship, but he brought Dorm and left Nathalian, because Nathalian can't leave without bring in the 20 elves. They're not going to let him walk into Minotaur War. And there's no way Kron can walk up with 20 elves shooting Minotaurs. That's not going to go well for future talks with elves. So Nathalian is left in charge of the ship while they're gone. Uh, yeah, I had no problem reading it. So there's that. They go inside and the combat starts. There's fighting. And during this, basically, this fighting in the hallways, because, again, big, minotaur-sized place, right? And they're going through the fighting, and there's people, and they find that there are, the women and children are being kept locked in one area, and several of the loyal, what you call noblemen or uh, uh, senators, are being locked in another one. Uh, I apologize, I, I don't know. Um, but it's something I'd probably rather talk about in chat than during this stream. Cause I don't want to, some people are here just for the D and D stuff and don't, not the other stuff. So I try not to talk too much about the other games during this stream, but I honestly, I don't know. It's randomly chosen. Um, so Kron has to 
He's like, he wants to save the women. And oh, no, you're fine. It's no problem. I just wanted to let you know why I, was, I didn't want you to think I was totally ignoring you or anything. It's just for a lot of people come here just for this as an audio podcast. If I go off on other subjects, it makes no sense to them. So I try to keep it as close to D&D as, as I can. Uh, but, of course, questions about D&D, throw at me. Um, so Darsh is, is like, Darsh is like, he's like, I've got to save the senators. I've also got to save my wives and children. I'm not sure what to do. Darsh is like, I'll go after the, the wife and kids. I'll take my friends. You get the senators, because the senators are actually being strongly guarded. And he's like, you know, they need you to take that back. And with you with the senators, and, and having the senators show your support, there's not much the separatists are going to be able to do to claim anything. Basically, you'll be taking back the kingdom. I will get your family. So Darsh and Dorum and a bunch of other mentors that they brought. Uh, I think they brought the sea mage and a couple other people that were loyal to Darsh as well, uh, because minotaurs don't have a lot of mages. They have a couple, but it's not very common. Um, so they go rolling in and, and that, so Darsh leads his group to the other side of the building or group of buildings. And there's pretty good guards blocking them as well. And they're attacking. And at, at one point there is, you know, children and such, and some of them, because remember, these ones here that are, are that are, are have them kidnapped, these are not what we would call honorable minotaurs. Some of them are assassins, rogues, liars, things that most minotaurs don't consider honorable. Um, so as Darsh and his group are fighting their way down the hallway and winning, um, several of the, I guess say bad minotaurs, um, start to grab some of the women and children and try to use them kind of as shields. It's like, you're going to let us out of here, knives to their throats kind of thing. Um, and one of them grabs uh, a young, say boy, minotaur boy. I mean, he's over six feet. But, you know, a young minotaur boy who's probably in his early teens that Darsh immediately recognizes as Kron's eldest son. Kron didn't take a mate till later in life, so he doesn't have a lot of elder sons at this point. This is his elder son. He's got two more younger ones. But the eldest son is being held by one of them with a knife to his throat kind of thing, and then they grab some miscellaneous young female minotaur as well. And these last two remaining guys, like, you're going to let us out of here, and we're going to take these with them, right? We're, we're going to get out of here, or else I'm going to kill the eldest son kind of thing. Eye patches. And um, they're... I'll answer that in a little bit. Let me finish telling the story first, okay? Um, so there, this combat thing is going on, and they're at a weird spot where they're like, Darsh is like, well, I, we can let him go, or, or what are we going to do? And I've mentioned several times in the past that Darsh likes to use a javelin, although he doesn't use them that often. Darsh wanted to have a ranged weapon when they first created him, and he was never a bow or crossbow kind of guy. So he would several, very often have several javelins on what would look like a giant arrow quiver on his back for a while. That he'd have two or three of them in there. And he found a couple magical ones um, that were like one use, throw it, and it caused everything around to get shocked and stuff. Um, but a lot of times he would carry a couple of them if he knew he was going into a big battle. This situation he didn't bring any. Uh, but sure enough, the guy standing next to him has one. And Darsh is kind of looking around figuring out what he's going to do here. And I let Darsh make the decision. And he looks at the javelin for just a second. And when he looks back up, the female minotaur kind of winks like she sees what he was looking at. And he's like, okay. 
And he starts talking and like, no. And they start coming forward like they're going to get through. And Darth snatches the thing and whips it. At the same time, the female Minotaur, because everybody learns to fight in a Minotaur kingdom, boosts the guy in the gut and drops. And at the same, the, the javelin just goes straight through the guy's chest. Nox sends the guy flying. The girl hits the ground. Luckily, it doesn't hit her. Um, and then the other guy is like, what the hell? Because you know, that happened. And at the same time, Sea Mage fires just a sink, simple, uh, simple magic missile spell. Easy, not super powerful, but with magic missile, it always hits. It's one of the perks of it being a very low-level spell for wizards. Magic missile automatically hits because you're literally with your mind willing it to go. There's no aiming. It'll zip around and hit what you need it to, but you do have to be able to see the target. You can't shoot around corners. If you see the target, you will hit it. And he literally pops one right into the dude's forehead. These are mentors. They don't deal with a lot of mages. It's not something they have to deal with a lot. So this thing zips across the thing, pops the guy in the head, causing him to stumble back a bit. And the eldest son grabs the weapon, spins it, and stabs the guy with it himself. So he actually kills the other minotaur. Because again, son of the uh, emperor, you're going to have some skills as well. So... This happens, and they fall, and, and everything gets wiped out. Darce goes and makes sure that they're both okay, the young female and the young boy, young guy. Everybody's okay. There's a bit of conversation there. This is a very important moment, because I gave somebody a choice. I like to do that. I've talked about that in the past. Sometimes I have a little envelope with a note in it or a little scroll that I give people at the beginning of the adventure. And I say, now it's time to open that. And she did. Darsh opened the envelope. And he was given a choice. And he chose yes. We'll talk about that in a minute. He chose yes. At this point, they all gather up. They'll go charging to where Kron was. They get there. As Kron and his force are coming back as well. Because they've successfully saved Senator Borum and the other senators. One senator was lost, sadly. But they were able to save them. And most of the rebels have either fled or been killed. Emperor Kron has taken back the Empire. And is very happy when he hears that his son killed the dude. I'm like... And the situation behind it. And he's also very excited. When he hears how successful. His cousin's daughter Lyra. Was. With the javelin excavate. And. Of course very happy for Darsh. Who saved them. So over the next several weeks. As it's been known that Kron comes out. Most of the rebels at this point have to be like, oh, he's alive. Cool. We're, we're not rebelling then because we were loyal to him. He was blah, blah. Some are taken back, some are not. But many of the very vocal and leaders, which was uh, Zithanth, hardcore in trouble. Um, what with everything from sanctions, taxes, just Kron's like just beating them down um, and, and squishing their economy and everything, making sure that they know that he knows who did this. Um, but he does take it, take back the leadership and all of the ships, once Kron is, uh, has a set, is sends Senator Borum along with the Morgenstern back to the front 
to where the blockade was. Once it arrives and it's declared that the civil war is basically over and that Kron has taken back the empire, the ships on the Thoramon slash uh, Oromon side are basically given a choice by Senator Borum. Turn yourself in now and be brought back into the empire or be considered exiles permanently. A couple of the ships stayed, but most of them came back. With that, with losing that big defense, Oromon never had a big navy. They're nowhere near the water. Um, Paxawal and the ally Corman and Arduel ships are then able to basically smash the barricade down the blockade and take back Thorman. All this takes place over several weeks to a month. <clears throat> While this happens, Thorman is taking back. Um, it turns out that the whole civil war of Thorman was BS sent out by Oromon, and both the queen and the princess had been prisoners. They're saved, and the queen agrees that as the blood, uh, blood child, she doesn't want to be in charge. The princess of Thorman becomes the new queen. The uh, original king's wife steps down from that role. She's still royalty, noble. They have a great relationship. There's no animosity between them. All of that was story. So the princess, who I'd like to point out, was saved from being assassinated by Darsh and Dandy previously likes them, is now the new queen. She's single. She has no husband, which is fine. That, that shit don't matter here. She's the queen of, hello, Buffy, queen of Thorman, who now again owes a big thanks to the Minotaurs, Corman, Croniar specifically, but the face of them in front of him is Senator Borum, who's a Minotaur, and Darsh again, stepping up to help. This really, because remember, Darsh and Mercy, Dandy and Artemis are all considered nobles of Thorman. They were given that rank back for helping save them from the undead. This goes a long way with Thorman, and it also goes a long way with bringing a bit closer of an allyship between Thorman and Kronear. Um, so politically, this made a lot of benefits to both sides, as well as to Darsh, who's considered a hero of both right now. Help take back the Empire, help take back Thorman. Darsh was already a, a minor noble and an up-and-comer with his own islands out there. He had more land than most of the high nobles do in Thorman, or Kroniar. And this is all said, Darsh again heads back to Corman, to, uh, Kroniar, I'm sorry, to, <laughs> so many names, Kroniar, to get Senator Born back there and escort the ships and say what the final result was. Upon returning, uh, Darsh and is hailed as, as a hero by the Emperor because he brought the Emperor back. That in itself is huge business. Um, and this is big because even states that they were forced to fight each other in the arena in Oromon and that Darsh fought him to a standstill. It's not how Darsh remembers it, but that's how the Emperor says it. Which, in essence, is saying, this is the first person who I didn't straight up defeat in a battle. Doesn't make Darsh the Emperor. It gives him claim to that challenge, should he ever wish to. Understand that. Kron is setting it up where he has the ability to challenge that. Not that he thinks he will. But if something should happen in the future, 
Blackhorn come up and he is assassinated or something. Kron is leaving someone with a claim that he thinks has a shot of taking it who could potentially try to take that place to stop the Civil War shit in the future. And Darsh did not know he was going to do that. He also didn't know that he was going to rank him up nobility-wise either, but he did. But the thing that surprised him the very, very most is when he came to Darsh and offers a way to bring a unity between their two houses. Because he now trusts Darsh more than almost any other Minotaur, except for Senator Borum, who he's known for a long time. Benator uh, Borum is hardcore loyal. No complaints there. But he considers Darsh incredibly loyal. He's the one that brought him back and helped him get back his empire, saved his kid and his family. All of that. And he wants to show that. There's a young female Minotaur, his cousin's daughter, that has been asking quite a few questions about the heroic young Darsh Minotaur who uh, helped save her previously in battle. And uh, her name was Lyra. And Darsh, who also chose yes, he was attracted to the young lass, is intrigued in this offer as well. And formally accepts uh, the Emperor's conversation and what he addressed and uh, says, I agree to this union of houses, but only if it's something she genuinely wants. That was something that the young lady playing her very much stressed. This isn't a, I'm taking her because you say so, or taking her because I say so. I want it to be something she genuinely wants. And so the Emperor made it time so they could get to know each other a little bit. They spent a little time together. Clearly there was feelings there. In this society, it's a little bit more common to be like set up by parents and things. But both of them have a genuine attraction to each other. And so it is announced that Darsh and Lyra will be married in the near future. doesn't happen during this adventure, but it does, is going to happen in the near future, uh, which of course brings the house of Fohammer and Orkspler, which is Kron's last name, closer together. Also makes Darsh even a little bit more loyal. His islands that are owned by him, you know what I mean? It, it, it helps everybody in this situation, politically. But it also gives Darsh a love interest. And they role-played out some more of the stuff. I, I played Lyra, of course. And the battle where he saves her, there's a little bit more in-depth stuff and signs and winks and this and that. And they had a little bit of talk afterwards about, you know, hey, thanks for saving me kind of thing. And he goes, what is your name? And Darsh Fohammer and stuff like that. Again, I'm telling the story, dude. You're going to have to chill. Let me finish telling the story before I answer questions that don't have anything to do with the story. Bear with me, okay? Um, so, he's like, I'm going to... He, he's cool with that. They had a little bit more role-playing and stuff that played together. Um, and once that was done, the interest was there. And then there was the thing, Darsh... Does Darsh feel attracted to this young person? It was basically the question. Something a little bit written better than that, but it was like, here is this person who you have the opportunity to feel an attraction to, do you? No, you're good. Just, just let you know. And they're like, and he's like, yeah, I'll take that. Yeah, I, I, I would like to see where that story arc leads. And it worked out. So Darsh basically has a betrothed at this point, um, which would make three of them have a romantic interest because Dandy's got Michael. 
Artemis had Draven. That one didn't turn out as well, but, you know, kid. And now Darsh has a betrothed, who he's genuinely attracted to. It's not just all for politics, but I'm not going to lie, it's definitely going to help. And Lyra's super smart. She is very intelligent, and not a bad warrior herself, nothing to Darsh's capabilities, but she's very intelligent, um, and so when the time comes that you get married, she steps in and Kart's becoming part of the business. She is a huge asset. She ends up doing a lot of the business side of stuff when Darsh has to go off on adventures. Um, and she becomes very good friends with... Uh, oh, wait a second. Nathan says, uh, if you play d and I don't think we have it here. However, I would still love to play it. I Yeah, as soon as I get done the story, I'll take an extra 10 or 15 minutes tonight to answer some of the questions that have been thrown out, as well as answering your question about um, how D&D works. I'll cover a little bit of that here once I get done, because we're getting close to the end of the story. Um, and we're not going to have a whole lot of time to get into the next one. I may just read the intro. So that's what happens with Darsh. So while all that's going on, Darsh gets to do a little bit of extra stuff there that he got to do outside of the adventure while everybody else is going to Serendi. But it sets him up with a little bit more of a future because now he's about to, he's going to marry Lyra, uh, which he's now a higher-ranked noble-wise. He's seen as incredibly loyal and relatively heroic uh, by the majority of the Minotaur kingdom. And that's going to open up a lot of doors for him with his business because, again, he's wanting to be a merchant. He's building that. He has enough money, he's going to move into getting another ship. Maybe he'll have a couple more ships in his in his uh, ownership at this point. He's, Thorman's definitely opened up more. Got the elves again, looks. He's got to get these, these uh, Nathalian's elves home. All of this, he's just politically put into some very good positions to really boom his business and get loyalty points with everybody. Because I kind of viewed a lot of these factions from a uh, World of Warcraft concept. Like, each group has a loyalty bar, and the more stuff you do, the more you gain reputation with that faction. I kept track of stuff like that. It wasn't the same thing, but the same kind of idea. Certain things could raise you in ranks with specific groups. And how that gr that group may change politically can change your rank as well. If all of a sudden there's a, a coup and someone takes over Thorman, I'm not saying that happened, I'm using this as an example, your rank may drop really, really low there because now the group that took over doesn't like you because you were loyal to the previous. Things like that can happen. As groups change, you may have to rebalance how you deal with them. Um, and that's the same thing with Serenity. It's gonna, it deals with, with a lot of the little towns that are around Serenity um, because some of them are like, yes, we want to be loyal part of Serenity right off the bat. Some are like, we kind of do, but we kind of want to be our own people. And some of the towns are like, hey, we're free for the first time. We don't want nothing to do with you. We want to be free. So Mercy had to deal with that same type of thing with the towns around Serenity and eventually groups a little bit further away from Serenity. But that's another story. So that's kind of what happened there. Everybody, uh, Artemis and everybody gets home. Artemis got to role play a little bit of a tongue lashing from Lucas, which I enjoyed uh, playing because she was just so shy about it. Um, but she's still trying to be like, I'm in charge. I'm the head priestess. Don't talk while I'm talking. Okay. And he's like, he's like, don't ever go out and this again. And the whole reason I'm here keeping you this, this big tirade. And it was, it was so much fun. I was making them giggle as much as I was. Cause he's very father figurey to, uh, Artemis. Um, so it's one of those father's daughter runs off and loves her madly, but still needs to chew her out. But technically, she's an adult on her own life, but can't do much about it. You know, it's one of those kind of a things that he's stuck in the middle of. But the last thing I said that Artemis, or said they had one little thing they were going to do before they go home, is they do decide to check in on Molly. 
Remember Molly? The lady who's living in their house. Um, and who they've been helping out. The, uh, with war and everything going on, and everything going on, uh, supplies are short in Paxwell. I mean, they're still okay. People get to eat, but not a lot of people sponging on pies. Business has not been as hot as it has been. And so she has, you know, some concerns. And at first they decided, they were thinking, you know, well, maybe we'll uh, give her some money to move into something else business-wise or help her out until the thing came up. But then Artemis had a completely different idea and offered, well, Molly, we'd love to have you at the temple. Come there, you could your business in Serenity, it's Serenity's booming. I guarantee your pies are delicious. Darsh will be pissed because now he can't come by and get a pie occasionally. <laughs> but for the rest of us, your business would boom if you would like to come to Serenity, we'll get you set up there. We'll get you a place to stay, get your business started, supplies. And we'll, you've been an asset to us, you've been taking care of our house for so long. Um, at this point, they decide to sell the house and invite Molly to come live with them. And Molly does. They then get permission from um, the temple for one room to be dedicated for them. One of their bedrooms that they always stay in uh, is to them locked, kept closed. The magical obelisks that allows them to teleport to Paxwell are then placed inside of there in the protection of the temple. So now they don't have to teleport to their basement they take everything out of that house, sell what they don't need, take the treasure out, so on and so forth. But now they have a place in the temple they can teleport to directly should they need to. Um, and only the head priests know what's really in that room. It's just a, this is for head lady Artemis whenever she visits, uh, because she has her own temple. She has her own room here dedicated to her. And everybody's like, oh, that makes sense. She's a high rank cleric now. So that room is kept locked and really is only unlocked from the inside. Or the three main clerics have an access to a key should they need to go in there. Um, but Molly decides to come back with them, accepting their offer, and Molly comes to live in serenity as well. Um, but yes, so that, everybody goes home, Artemis now has to deal with her future as, uh, going to be having a kid. Uh, Mercy has to explain what all happened to her people, who are very, uh, unhappy and happy. Happy to have her back, unhappy they left without telling her, um, but very happy that Ulrich was able to bring her back successfully. And Ulrich is... Uh, has always been uh, the guy that the rest of them looked up to. Um, Quan as well, because they're kind of the two older of the guys. Um, but Quan is, you know, and Ulrich, hearing what they did and how they saved Mercy, the other guys really look up to him even more so now. But that's pretty much how that adventure ended. Everybody made it home. Um, Artemis clearly had the most big change in her life with her short romance with Draven and the after effects of that. Um, Mercy, or sorry, Dandy and Michael have a bit better of an understanding now that Dandy has merged with Menandra. She knows more of what Michael has to go through. And so Dandy at this point tries to make a point of while they're hunters, they do their thing, tries to keep it so that he doesn't have to do that as often as he used to. Try to keep him out of situations where he has to go through that merge <clears throat> because of how much he has to pay mentally and physically and the pain he goes through while doing so. Uh, Mercy immediately starts setting up more of a border. We need defensives on our border. We know Oromon's out there. They know where we are. They're going to be pissed. We're going to have to deal with them again eventually. So at this point, what would be the border of their land towards Ormond? They need more patrols. They need like defensive towers. They need more of a border on that side to protect their people. And that becomes a big sway of Dandy's life moving forward. And Dandy and Michael decide that they are going to move 
to Serenity as well. They they decide they're going to build or buy a house here. They have a little place that they use a little bit. They're going to get a better one. They've decided they want to move here as well, um, as close as they are with these guys. They decide traveling boat to boat, just looking for undead. It's a little bit more than they want to do at this point in their life. Um, and so they're going to kind of settle down here a little bit in Serenity. Uh, they left a message. They, they made that determination before they came back. So um, it's Darsh goes and takes the Miss Dandelion ship back into his own ownership. Um, and any of those who are part of her crew are invited to come to Serenity and still be hunters in this area and still work with them if they want to. Or they can get basically a big chunk of pay for all the time they've been waiting and go off and do their life forever. Um, but Darsh takes back the Miss Dandelion as one of his ships and it becomes one of the ships that just travels between his islands delivering supplies, construction, people, whatever. It was the smallest ship they had. But that is how everybody ended up in that adventure. And we ran a little bit right at 10.30. Um, I'm going to read the intro to the next section just to give you guys an, a, a bit of a taste of what we're looking at. And then I may reread it again next week as well, but it's only going to take a couple of minutes to kind of set the pace for the next one. Um, and I hope you like it. I, this I, I wrote a bit of an intro to get... I usually have a nice little intro at this point to intro each thing, so hopefully you guys think it's okay. So this section is called New Beginnings. But you're wondering how long ago this is, or how far in the future. We'll find out. Mercy decided long ago that her favorite feeling in the world is the freedom she feels when riding on the back of a strong horse. When the wind is going through her hair as she races along is when she feels the most alive, other than combat and such. Mercy brings the stallion to a stop next to the stable. She climbs down and hands the reins to the young stable boy and walks over to Ulrich, sitting nearby. He's leaning casually against the fence of the, of the corral. Behind him, she can see the 40 or so horses that the corral contains. I swear, he says, the way you ride those things, it's amazing they haven't all fallen over dead yet. Mercy chuckles and says, not these. I've been careful to only get the best. I'm glad to see the breeding is going well. We have three pregnant mares already. Mercy, the character, has always wanted horses to be a big part of her kingdom and have really good horses for her, her knights, and the people. The two of them climb aboard their regular mounts and head back to the keep. Ulrich gives her the daily report. No real issues currently, she's happy to hear. The Serenity Border Guard report no activity from Oromon, and none of their forces have been seen in this area in over a year. We've jumped ahead in time. Information recently received from Paxwall implies the uh, Emperor is still trying to quell the local rebellion. Um, he's still dealing with a lot over there. The last of those brigands harassing Willowind is in custody. The small group has been waylaying travelers for several months. Willowind is one of those small towns in Serenity. Everything else was pretty peaceful. Things have been going well in Serenity. The land had been at peace and all the local towns had allied themselves with Serenity. Trade was open between them all and with Serenity. Serenity itself was growing quickly. Multiple shops, markets, homes, and a second inn had been built on lands claimed by Mercy as part of Serenity. Multiple farms are producing both crops and livestock. If you'll remember, a lot of land she claimed no one lived on. Um, and then people wanted to build the Serenity. She gives them this land, they lease it, or she sells it. Different situations. Um, let's see. The Brotherhood of Magic have begun construction of their tower. So that's something new. 
Several mages are currently living in one of the inns as they oversee the construction. Their leader is a white-robed mage named Angus. He's an older gentleman who's made a point of building a relationship with Mercy and the citizens of Serenity. So the Brotherhood of Magic, who is has a tower where Lamia and them chill down in Paxiwal, has been given permission by Mercy to build in Serenity. Um, it is now on the building on the north side of the lake. So again, if you're looking at a map, her keep is kind of on the southeast side, and the temple is on the southwest side, a little bit more west than south. So on the, of this lake, and above that was mostly woods that a lot of the lumber has come from and been cleaned out to build everything else. So there's a lot of really good land there, and a chunk of that um, is being basically sold, given slash leased with the uh, Brotherhood of Magic. Uh, Mercy had worked that out with Lamia and the head of Paxiwal to extend here. Because they both felt that it was, I mean, the, the mages have worked with them very many times that have been helpful. And having a presence in this area would also help should Oromon be an issue again. And that was definitely a very big bonus for Mercy to have mages to help defend. As, Mo As Mercy and Ulrich make their way up the road to the Keep's Gates, Mercy looks, out, or looks over at the temple on the far side of the lake. Here comes a big sentence. She can't help but wonder how Artemis and Seraph are doing. Artemis chose to name her son Seraph. Uh, S-E-R-A-P-H. She chose that, not me. Uh, but that is the name that she gave her son. Now you be careful with that baby, says Miyasha, waving her finger at Kelvin. Kelvin just smiles at her and then down at the baby in his arms. Leave the boy alone, scolds Artemis playfully. Kelvin loved holding Seraph. He's careful and would never drop him. I'm not worried he'd drop him, Miyasha responds, brows furrowed. I'm more concerned the child might end up in one of those pouches, never to be seen again. Artemis laughs as she looks over and signs a few uh, documents on her, on her desk. Finishing that, she turns back to the letter she's writing to Sister Mara and Paxiwal. There is a knock at the door and Artemis bids them in. Lucas enters the room and greets everyone. Did not drop him. Uh, everyone. He gives his morning report, explaining guard rotations and security measures. Artemis smiles and nods, allowing him to go through his routine. Artemis trusts temple security to Lucas completely, and this was more for his benefit than for hers. After a few moments, he finishes. He turns to leave, but stops at the door. I almost forgot, milady. Miss Dandelion stopped by and asked me to tell you that she and Sir Michael shall stop by after dropping off their things. With that, he excuses himself and leaves. Another kender, exclaims Miyasha. I'm going to have to go order that baby some armor and tie a rope around it. Lady Artemis, asks Kelvin, a confused look on his face. How come everyone is always worried about me playing with the baby, yet Sister Miyasha is trying to wrap it in metal and drag it around by a rope? Miyasha throws up her hands in frustration and storms out of the room as Artemis breaks out in laughter. Kelvin goes back to, po goes back to poking Seraph, delighted in the baby's giggles. Mercy mounts her horse as Ulrich steps into the stables. Dandy and Michael are back and are heading over to the temple. I'm off to meet them there, she says. Ulrich nods and says, Master Jacob has several new designs for you to see when you have a few moments. Tell him I will visit as soon as time allows, Mercy replies. 
Jacob was Serenity's master armorsmith. He's incredibly talented, and both he and Mercy were working on some new armor design for her soldiers. Mercy says goodbye and makes her way to the temple. As she makes her way, she's greeted several times and receives waves and smiles from everyone she passes. Looking around, she can't help but smile and feel amazed by how quickly her little town was growing. Finally, Mercy reaches the temple, and she's shown into Artemis' personal quarters. Dandy is sitting on a couch next to her, uh, next to Artemis, Seraph in her arms. Michael is sitting in one of the big chairs, a troubled look on his face. Look, Mercy, Artemis is letting me hold the baby, and I'm being really careful. Mercy smiles and sits down on a nearby chair. So Michael's sitting there, like in a shock, a little bit of sweat, nervous. Dandy proceeds to tell them about Kendertown, the Kender City. Kendertown, the Kender City, is only a few, uh, only a week, week and a half away should you travel northwest of Serenity. Um, the head of the Kender, uh, they call him the president, but he's just gets more of a formal title than anything else. Uh, his name is Pappy Longfellow, and he's one of the oldest Kenders that Dandy has ever met. The, the town contains approximately 400 Kender, uh, but it could hold up to a thousand. The homes are all weirdly built in different colors and all sorts of stuff. And when a Kender comes into town, if they decide they want to stay there for a while, they just move into an empty house and live there until they decide to move on. Wanderlust takes them or they reach near the end of their lives when it's finally come time to maybe settle down, have a child or something. They'll move into one of the homes permanently. There are no, anywhere, there are no other towns anywhere in that area. Uh, and by the way, Pappy says hi. The baby then begins to cry, and Artemis uh, will ask Dandy to run and get a blanket from her room. Dandy hands the baby to Artemis and says, sure, and goes to get, a goes to get the blanket. Dandy then hurries off, and, and they look at Michael, and Michael just looks at them. He's like, you don't understand. So many kinder. I've never had so many hands on me at once. I'll never get any of that stuff back. <laughs> He is basically in Kender shock. Not many people can walk into a Kender city other than Kenders and come out without feeling that kind of fear. Dan Artemis and Mercy just can't help but start laughing as the horrors that he describes that he had to go through. Dandy returns and can't help and has to ask what's so funny, and that makes them laugh even more. And the next few days are uneventful. And that's where I'm going to stop the story for today. Um, I haven't given any clues to what the story is going to be. That's just an intro to where they are and at their points in their life. Uh, it's well over a year since they came back. Um, I'll give specific times next week. Uh, but they, uh, they made it back and, uh, life is going well for them. It always starts that way, doesn't it? But yes, I have some more reading to do, but that actually starts where we're going to get into something, so that I'm going to wait for next week. Um, but next week is second week of Merge Worlds, so I'm very excited to be able to share that with you again. I like that we're doing three weeks of Merge Worlds in a row now. I like the extra time to tell the story, and I appreciate all of you who come by and hang out and watch the stream or watching it later. I mean, you can be watching this two years from now. I appreciate that you're watching this. Or you're listening to it on iTunes and Spotify. Uh, Spotify had like six or seven new people follow 
the uh, podcast in the past couple of weeks, which is the biggest jump I've had in a long time. And I really appreciate those folks who are giving it a chance um, and are listening to it. Uh, it's my favorite thing I get to do, and I love to share it with you guys. So uh, I really appreciate everybody who's giving it that chance. Um, so uh, answer some of the earlier questions. Uh, was... January, February might have us playing. I'd like to think so. I'd like to be starting by the end of January, early February. Um, it just kind of depends on exactly where we are in the story. Um, I know that starting early January, uh, within the first, probably the, by the end of the first week, week and a half, um, will be the first episode of Behind the Dice, which is going to be the more technical side of D&D. Uh, it'll be shorter. I'll probably only do that for 30 minutes to an hour. Um, it's not meant to be as long as other stuff that I've done, but it's going to be a short 30 minute to an hour stream where I can get on, talk about some of the more technical things of a D&D, how characters work, how I run classes, how I do, how I handle time. Time movement is a, is a big deal that I've had to work out in world. Talking more technically about the gods and which clerics have which abilities, uh, based on their religions. Uh, and then some of the stuff about the adventures itself. How did that battle work? They were in a puzzle room. What was the more specifics of the puzzle? I have a lot of information about that technical side of D&D for the people who want to know more about that. But some people just like the story and aren't as interested in that. So I try not to do too much of that in the actual story podcast. Um, how long have you done D&D for? Over 30 years. Uh, I've been running and working this storyline for about 30 I started when I was 11, so I've been playing for 32 years, technically. I've not played in the last couple of years, but I've still been working on it and doing stuff. Um, when we start in January, February, do we need webcams? Can I start a business? Can I have a relationship with anyone other than villains? <laughs> anyone other than villains? What are the rules of character creation races? When it comes to the rules of character creation, I'm not sure yet. I normally ask that people not go insane on their first character. If it's the first time you've played D&D... Uh, I would normally prefer you start with a relatively basic class. Doesn't mean we can't work some special stuff in there for you. Um, I ask that people try not to always be gods. And that sounds odd, but in your story, not everyone is the, is, is the long-lost prince of something or other. You know? I'm not, you're not always the one elf with silver hair who legends foretold that one day blah, 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 blah. You're a regular person who just happens to be put into unregular circumstances, which really gives you a chance to become who you're going to be. I, I want you to build that character. It's okay to have a backstory. Try not to have it be the epic, crazy backstory. The more normal a backstory is... Um, the more exciting it is when you get to do regular stuff. Rafe and Nilet Firemoon that started all this were the sons of woodcutters. They thought they were going to be woodcutters until their father died. They sometimes helped be a little bit um, more combat-based because they helped guard caravans around the area. Um, and they just happened to have a natural skill for it. And they ended up being stuck in a spot where they had to use that skill. Um, that's not to say that having a story, an interesting story, you can have an interesting story, just trying to make yourself, I was once rich, I was once a prince or a queen or whatever the case was. I'm the long lost heir to the throne of blah, 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 blah. You know, have a story that I, I may pick things out of that to work on later on down the road. Maybe your backstory will never have anything to do with the story. So it'll be interesting to have some depth to your character where you want to take him. As for businesses and love interests and stuff, that comes down the road. That won't be anything right off the bat because, to be honest, some people may come in and play once or twice and then never come back. Um, some people may not be good at it. 
Some people, unfortunately, uh, and so they don't want to play. And some people, unfortunately, just may not mesh well with the story. And if that happens, I, I have to make choices and say, I'm sorry, at this point, I'm going to set you aside for a while and I'm going to work with another group or um, things like that. Because again, when someone plays an adventure, it's going to be a short one or two day adventure. They're going to be little adventures and then I'm going to do different groups and all these characters are going to start to mix match over time. So you may play one day and then you may not play again for a month because I'm doing other groups because there's a lot of people who've shown interest in participating in this. Um, so I'm very excited to be able to give everybody that chance and the people whose characters work the best together, who take it seriously and play for the story are the people that I'm probably going to give more chances to. So taking it seriously is important. There's nothing wrong with being silly once in a while. Um, but to me, this is going to become canon. It's going to become part of the overall story of Merged Worlds. Uh, so if someone starts screwing with my story, I won't take it well. So I just be straight up honest, you know, uh, take it seriously. And I promise I will provide you a fun and exciting adventure and give you plenty of opportunities for growth. You can see that through these characters. Now, kings and merchants and love interests and kids, I will make sure that I bring stuff into there that you'll find fun and exciting. Uh, you just got to trust me to do that in the time that it's needed. Um, and you know, fall in love with your character. You know, enjoy your character, um, but be aware that the story comes first. Sometimes bad things happen to good people. Sometimes I have to say about that time things have to happen. I will never aim to kill your character unless you're just a total jackass that I need out. You know, be, be a good person and you're fine. I never, I never set out to kill characters, but I do set out things to be challenging where the threat exists. There is sometimes a character will die. And if that happens, sometimes you got to roll another character. Um, I never plan on killing you specifically, uh, but depending on how things shake out, it can happen. Um, let's see. So yeah, there's that. And then there were some questions about uh, how do you play D&D. So basically, um, we will sit down. Um, I will sit down with people specifically. We'll probably do it one-on-one -on -one in a Discord thing. I'll probably open up a channel just for me and you and lock it so that no one else can come in. Um, we'll go in. We'll chat about the character you want to make. We'll talk about races, classes, and options. And then we'll roll your character, which all ends up on paper. Uh, you'll keep notes of what your abilities are, your skills. If you're a warrior, what kind of sword have you got? If you're a wizard, what spells do you know? If you're a cleric, what spells do you know? And what god do you worship? That type of stuff. We'll figure out what your character is going to be. Come up with a bit of a backstory. Um, figure out what basic equipment it has and why that character is where he or she is going to be when the adventure starts. Because you're not all going to start knowing each other. You're going to each start separately. Um, but all in the same adventure. So I, one person may have 10 minutes where I set you up, set the next person up 10 minutes, 10 minutes, 10 minutes, and then I start bringing everybody together. Um, and then we play for hours. So I tell you a story, much like I'm telling on stream, but I will give you decisions. I'll say you're walking down the hallway. You hit a dead end, you can go left or right. You tell me which way you want to go. What you pick will have an effect on the story. You go left. There's a trap there. Are you a rogue? No. So you set a trap off. You take damage. You decide to go right. Instead, there's some stairs that go up winding to the top of the tower. You get up there. There's a crazy old man who says he's going to hit you with his cane and turn you into a frog. What do you do? Okay, I attack him. I back up so he doesn't hit me with his cane. I cast a spell on him. There'll be a lot of different things you can do based on that situation, and your responses will enable the story to go forward. I like to say it's a lot like a much more in-depth 
choose-your-own-adventure novel. If you've ever read one of those. I loved those as a kid. And I, I always feel that what that's one thing that gave me a bit of an edge when writing D&D, is I really view a lot of this like a choose-your-own-adventure novel. I have the different paths written out. I just need to know which ones you're going to take when you get there. And then I go on that path. Um, will this be using 5th edition? Yes, it will. Um, that's another reason why it's going to be January to early February. I don't know 5th edition. I bought the books. They're right there. But I'm going to take some time over the next couple of weeks as I've got a little bit of time off for the holiday. And I have to sit down and learn how the mechanics of 5th edition work. Because I've always only played 2nd edition. But as I'm trying to bring this into a more modern world where people who play now may want to, or new fans may come into the storyline and start following more of the technical side, um, I need to be able to play the version that everybody in the world is playing right now. And I've heard a lot of good things that 5th has finally fixed a lot of the issues that 3, 3.5, and 4 had. Uh, that 5th is comparable to 2nd in how successful it is. There's just a lot of changes. So uh, it will be a 5th edition adventure. I just have to learn it before I can start teaching everybody else. Because I'm going to go in there and I'm going to make changes. There's going to be things I don't like and I'm going to take them out. There's things that I've designed for Merge World that I'm going to bring in. Uh, something as simple as class... Oh, sorry, buddy. Class race combinations. Um, in classic Dungeons & Dragons, only a lawful good person can be a paladin. I think that's crap. I think any god can have a paladin. But I, to an extent, I think that you, there's such a good thing as a good paladin, there's an evil paladin, and there's a neutral paladin. Get down. Get down. And a neutral paladin. A neutral paladin is all about maintaining a balance. I think that their whole existence is to make sure that good and evil deal with. Um, and then an evil paladin is trying to do the same thing that a good paladin would, except for evil, right? Um, express their God's will and move those out. So there's a, a lot of different race class combinations that I do differently based on my gods and the pantheon that I've designed. And we'll talk a lot more in detail about those gods and their relationships. That'll probably be one of the first things we do in the Behind the Dice podcast is to get everybody aware of exactly how gods work because uh, it's a little bit different from traditional D&D and um, anybody playing in Merge Worlds is going to need to know about the gods, whether you choose to be a cleric or somebody that worships them. You could be a regular fighter who has a favorite god. You may have no favorite god, you just like them all. Um, it's the, in Dungeons and Dragons, gods have a hand actually in events, so knowing what gods do, uh, which gods want what, which ones are good and evil, it's important for everybody to have a knowledge. I would think you grow up in a world where gods will literally show up. Most people are going to know the majority of what gods are. So we're going to talk about that. That'll be a big thing we deal with on Behind the Dice. Because uh, Behind the Dice is technical D&D, but it'll also be very, very merged world-centric uh, to still help people understand this story as well as be able to participate in future stories. But that is all going to happen uh, into next year because i got to learn it before I can teach anybody else. But it is 10.55. We're about 30 minutes over. So I'm going to have to call this a day. Because if I go too much longer, if the podcast gets too long, it doesn't fit on Spotify and I have to cut it into two. And that is just a big hassle for people trying to follow these. So I'm going to call it a day. Uh, if you have any more questions about Merge Worlds or D&D, there is a Merge Worlds thread on my Discord channel specifically for that. Go to the Discord. You can get to my Discord if you're not part of it already. 
by going to onlydraven.com. There's a button at the top of my homepage. Take you right in. Everybody's welcome. We're always looking for new folks. Uh, but there's a Merge Worlds thread there. So if you have questions about Merge Worlds or D&D and stuff, feel free to bring it in there. I'm always keeping an eye on it. And I'm happy to answer as soon as I can. Um, if you enjoyed the stream today, please be sure to click like, but subscribe. That's the big one. Hit that little bell notification. So that way you know every time my stories and my streams go live so you can hang out with us. Um, next Sunday will be Merge Worlds again at 8 p.m. Tomorrow we'll be doing back we'll be back at Minecraft at 6 p.m. Eastern for some more Sky Factory. Um, I should in the next day or so know what the stream schedule is going to be for uh, Christmas Eve and Christmas um, and what I'm planning for that. I'm going to try to get the PC fixed tomorrow so that way I can maybe bring us in some other games. Uh, but we'll talk about that more in Discord. Again, thank you all for coming. I appreciate you letting me tell this story and share this very important part of my life with you all. Um, as always, extra special thank you to my members, you guys participating in that, as well as the people who donate. Um, really help support the channel, and there'd be a lot less of this if it wasn't for you guys, so thank you so much for that. Um, and a super extra special thank you for my moderators, for with whom nothing I do would work correctly. So I appreciate you guys and all of the help that you give as well. Uh, again, this is available as an audio podcast on Spotify and iTunes. This episode will be up tomorrow. Go ahead there. Follow on iTunes and Spotify. If you're not sure how to find it, you can just do a search for Merge Worlds. Or on my website, there's a link to both of those as well. Swing on by. Check out the podcast. Give it a follow. Rate it if you feel up to it. Love to have you around. And Robert, thank you very much, sir. I appreciate that. Hope things are going well for you, Robert. It's been a while. <laughs> all right. You kids all have yourselves a great evening. More Minecraft tomorrow. And I will see you then. Have yourself a great day.